pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chickie Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, 
and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. All right. All right, you're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. We are also broadcasting simulcast up on Facebook. I started to go up on YouTube today, and I saw there's a problem with it, so I'll figure it out. It's taken me this long just to get it on Facebook. <laughs> it's a miracle. <laughs> I'll get it up on, on uh, YouTube soon. I'm your hostess with the most just the radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. Am I listening today? I feel like I am. Oh <laughs> uh, no, you're doing great. I am just chilling. It's nice and cool here. Got that nice autumn breeze for like the first time this year. And I got treated out to lunch by the vice chairman of the Republican Executive Committee here. Actually the guy who replaced me. So I have no complaints, you know. I mean, I wanted to go to the beach, but I knew I had the radio show to do and I couldn't miss the radio show. So here I, I am. You need a tan. As if you need a tan. <laughs> hey, I'm a Navy guy. Just love the ocean. <laughs> well, if I do sound a little funny, I had three teeth pulled yesterday, and uh, it was not fun, and my face is slightly bruised. So if you're looking at the camera and you see a little bruising on my face, it's, that's why a little swelling. Uh, I do feel like I'm lisping a little bit. But we got ourselves a great show here, Curtis. Uh, we've got some fantastic guests. We've got Liz Harrington. She is the spokesperson for the National RNC, the Republican National Committee. Uh, she got appointed right. just back this past April. She will be joining us at the start of the show. And there's a lot she wants to talk about. So much has happened over this past week. And I don't think we're going to have enough time with her because there's that much going on. Uh, we've got also Dean Ritter. Uh, he's actually a constitutional attorney, I believe, uh, but he's written several books, and his latest one is called The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil. And that's a powerful, a really powerful book. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and then also from Freedom Works, uh, we're going to have John Tamney. He also has a new book out. Uh, it's called They're Both Wrong. A Policy Guide for America's Frustrated Independent Thinkers. And at the end of the show, we're going to have come back uh, Captain Ryan Shove, and he's going to be talking to us about Syria, China, and veterans' issues, and anything else we can possibly throw at poor Ryan. <laughs> Ryman. Um, so we got ourselves a great, great show going on today. Holy moly. So much to say, so much to do. Yep. Turning points, too, he's a part of. Turning Points oh, in America. That, uh, oh, that, that's correct. Turning Points that's in America. Correct. There's a link up on the show page. And I'm glad you reminded me on that one. Um, meanwhile, I'm, I'm sending out the invites to people to do the watch party over at Facebook. It doesn't let me to do it ahead of time, and I don't know why, but we're going to get them out and let people know that we're up there. Uh, anyway, those that listen to the show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And sometimes I have to piece these things together through multiple uh, sources. And this is literally from 
several different sources from Defense Maven, uh, from MPR News. Um, We've got from Minnesota CBS Local, uh, Officer Day on Memorial page, as well as Fox 9. So bear with me as I do this dedication. And today's dedication is going to go out to Conservation Officer Eugene Wynn, Jr. of the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, the Enforcement Division out of Minnesota. His end of watch was Friday, April 19th of this year. And it starts off. Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, DNR Enforcement Division, Conservation Officer Eugene Wynn died in the line of duty on Friday. April 19, 2019, when he was ejected from a boat into the frigid water of Cross Lake. Officer Wynn, 43, and a Pine County Sheriff's Office PCSO Deputy Scott Grice responded to a Cross Lake area at approximately 7.45 p.m. after a fisherman reported that there was possibly a body floating in the water, KMSP reported. Deputy Grice and Officer Wynn were unable to identify the floating object from their position on the shoreline, so they got into the veteran officer's boat to investigate further. But within one minute of their launch, both Deputy Grice and Officer Wynn were catapulted from the vessel into the icy water. They tried to swim shore while other deputies attempted to rescue them with a rowboat. He was out there struggling to hang on to him. He kept yelling his name, saying, stay with us, witness Katie Schwartz told WCCO. Deputy Grice was ultimately rescued, but they were unable to get to Officer Wynn before he slipped below the surface. All of the ice from other parts of the lake came up, and there's a strong current that goes straight along the river, said Schwartz's mother, Barbara Bideen. When it changed from being a rescue to a recovery, the whole atmosphere changed, Rydeen recounted. You could tell it was really hard for them because it was one of their own that was missing. Officer Wynn's body was recovered from the frigid water early Saturday morning. The deputy who was pulled from the water was treated at a hospital in Moria and has since been released. The object that was seen floating in the lake was never identified or recovered. The PCSO said the incident was accidental and that they were working to determine what events led up to the tragedy. Officer Wynn, a married father of two, had been with the DNR since 2001, KMSP reported. Words can't describe the sense of loss we feel at this time, Commissioner Sarah Stroman told the news outlet. Officer Wynn's service at the state of Minnesota is a debt we can never repay. Officer Wynn served his agency in the entire state of Minnesota with distinction, the DNR Enforcement Division Director Colonel Rodman Smith said. We're devastated by his loss and asked the people of Minnesota to keep Officer Wynn and his family in their thoughts during this difficult time, Colonel Smith added. Minnesota Governor Tim Waltz praised the fallen officer for his service in 
a statement. As a first responder, peace officer, and protector of Minnesota's natural resources, Officer Eugene Wynn dedicated his life to keeping Minnesotans safe and making our state a better place to live. Gwen and I send our deepest sympathies to his family, and on behalf of the state of Minnesota, we thank him for his many years of selfless service. Our thoughts and prayers are with the family of Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Enforcement Division Conservation Officer Eugene Wynn, both blood and blue. Thank you for your service. And from MPR. A Minnesota conservation officer who died after falling from a boat in a Pine County lake in April was not wearing a life jacket at the time, the county sheriff's office said. The Department of National Resources officer Eugene Wynn and a Pine County sergeant were responding to a call on Cross Lake near Pine City on April 19th when they were thrown overboard. The sergeant was rescued but Wynn's body was later recovered. The sheriff's office investigation found Wynn accelerated the boat away from shore, then made an abrupt left turn. The boat corrected, and both officers were thrown overboard. Two other deputies on shore rescued the sergeant with a rowboat and a pedal boat, but Wynn went under, the sheriff's officer said, as it released the results of its inquiry. Water temperature was about 40 degrees, and neighbors reported seeing large chunks of ice floating on the lake. But an inspection did not find anything unusual about the boat that would have contributed to the accident. The sheriff's office says that there were two life jackets in the boat, but the officers were not wearing them. Minnesota DNR rules require staff to wear life jackets when they are on the water. Wynn, 43, had been a DNR conservation officer since 2001 and based in Pine City. The wife of fallen Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Conservation Officer Eugene Wynn spoke out for the first time since her husband's death. His wife, Pine County Judge Heather Wynn, issued this statement. I, my children, and Wynn's parents are so thankful for the support of the first responders, Eugene's law enforcement community, and my judicial family in response to this great loss. I am also grateful for the many others who have reached out to share their love and support. At this time, I ask for your prayers for my family. Officer Wynn was thrown from a boat on Course Lake while responding to a call about a possible body spotted in the water. Wynn loved the woods and water ever since he was a little boy growing up in Wisconsin. He wanted to be a conservation officer. Sadly, 18 years after realizing that dream, he died as one. For hours before his service, Wynn was honored by a sea of fellow law enforcement. This just tears at everyone's hamstrings, said LEMA Honor Guard Commander Dave Holmquist. From across the country, county deputies, police officers, state troopers, and fellow conservation officers paid respects. And for Governor Tim Waltz, it was his first time undertaking this sad 
and somber duty, with lowered flags fluttering in a stiff breeze. The sound of horses pulling his caisson drew the silent salutes. Soon, a wall of green uniformed COs marched inside. To be here to help support one and each other and support the family and this community is mourning as well. To kind of come together to show our support and help the healing process begin, HomeQuest said. After a brief but moving service, <clears throat> there was a tribute from overhead. DNR aircraft paid a final salute to the officer who loved the outdoors which he served and sacrificed. And from CBS Local, a Pennsylvania police officer who spends his free time painting portraits of fallen officers has created a tribute to Eugene Wynn, the Minnesota conservation officer who died in the line of duty. Johnny Castro of the Philadelphia Police Department posted his portrait of Wynn on Facebook, along with a caption that described the circumstances of the 43-year-old's death. Castro, the portrait artist, has painted more than 150 portraits of fallen officers from across the world, according to CBS Philadelphia. He sends the finished portraits to family and friends and covers the expenses himself. And this is from Fox 9. The annual dinner for the Minnesota 100 Club took place at Jack's Cafe in Northeast Minneapolis. The event raised money for families of fallen or injured first responders. The organization works to give immediate aid to the families to help with medical, funeral, and other unexpected expenses. The organization gave over $17,000 to the family of Bullen DNR Conservation Officer Eugene Wynn. And finally, from the Officer Dan Memorial page. The true measure of a person is not found in the might of their arm, their wealth, or their power. It is found in the strength of their character. There is no greater testimony to one's character than one's willingness to sacrifice all in the noble quest of providing protection to all whom they serve. The author is unknown, but it was posted by Javier Cojeo, police officer retired of the City of Milwaukee Police Department. Today's show is dedicated to Conservation Officer Eugene Wynn, Jr. It is also dedicated to all of the amazing men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, emergency services. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve in our military from the birth of this great nation through today and into its future. We dedicate to them this name, this song by Todd Allen Harrington. My name is America. May God bless each and every one. Born in the grip of oppression, I fought for my liberty. I paid with the blood of my people. 
Freedom has never been free. Now my door's always open to dreamers and friends. When I'm attacked, I protect and Harrington, my name is American. You get that at ToddAllenShow.com. Matter of fact, he reached out to me, Curtis, to come back on the show, and I haven't been able to follow up. Uh, for those that are watching in on the uh, Facebook feed, if you see my face a little swollen and bruised, it's because I had three teeth mm-hmm. pulled last night. If I talk a little funny, I was doing the dedication, and I, I just <laughs> – I'm having a lot of fun trying to talk today. <laughs> 
But oh, oh you sound God. normal to me. I, I, <laughs> not feeling normal. Anyway, uh, we got ourselves a great show uh, going on. Want to welcome everyone that is listening over on Facebook, up there watching there. Those that are here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, and all the other places that we're broadcasting. Uh, just remember to go to our website. It's the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle. Become a member of our website. That way you can go onto our email list. And the only time I send you something is if I got a show going out, which is once a week. So I ain't going to bother you any other time. So just go on to our website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle and check it out. Also check out Patriot Food. I mean, the stuff is great. Uh, buy it. Go out and buy it. Anyway, Curtis, a lot to do, a lot to talk about. Liz Harrington, she is the spokeswoman for the uh, Republican National uh, Committee. Uh, she'll be joining us in about five minutes. But there's so much more going on. I mean, Curtis, they are, I, I swear, the left have lost their mind out there. You got call after call after call for impeachment and coming not just from the Democrats, but coming from um, Republicans now. You've got uh, this. This really gets me now. Correct me if I'm wrong, Curtis, but does not the ambassadors and other appointments by President Trump serve at his pleasure when a president appoints an ambassador or to a member to the cabinet? They serve at his pleasure. Correct. Am I am I wrong or right? Uh, you're right, just like um, Jim Comey, you know. The, the, that was a, a lot of nothing to do about nothing. Even though they say they have a term that they serve, say, two years, four years, whatever it is, if the president is no longer pleased, no longer feels like you're serving the good of the country and forwarding his, pol- uh, his policies, he has the right, that he has the mandate to take your resignation or fire your butt. But the instead constitutional right. Exactly. The former Ukrainian ambassador Maria Yarbanovich uh was appointed under Obama. And shortly after Clinton took uh, not Clinton, Trump took office. Boy was that a Freudian slip. Trump took office. Oh, I'm she started bad mouthing Trump to Czech officials, the very people she should be working and negotiating with on behalf of the United States. She begins to badmouth him, and he goes, I can't have this. I can't have an ambassador working across president purposes with the presidency and with our cabinet policies. This is just not right. So he took her resignation. He fired her butt. So now the left is up in arms because she did not serve out her full term. Do you think Obama kept anyone from the Bush administration in his in his cabinet or as an advisor or as an ambassador? Not. So what makes Trump any if different? She, oh, that's right. He's Trump. <laughs> what they won't tell you is that uh, the president really doesn't have to provide a reason. Why he's dismissed someone? That's that's his prerogative. No, but instead they're going to make a whole big kerfuffle out of the fact that this ambassador was fired from her post as ambassador to the Ukraine, and now she's going to be testifying before Adam Shifty Shift and his panel, and that's going to go real far. 
And they're making this whole Ukrainian thing into something bigger. Now, we had our guest last week saying it's going to blow up in their face, and I think it's going to blow up real soon. But to deflect the debate, our, our purpose of saying, hey, listen, there's nothing there. You're going to end up shooting yourself in the foot. They now drag Giuliani in. Now, I think Giuliani may have shot himself in the foot because I was watching when uh, Trump was getting ready to take off for the rally in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, which we'll be talking to Liz about. Oh, man, I watched that rally. And if you watch what was going on afterwards, holy moly. Um, but he was he was asked about Giuliani and these two guys that were, quote, associates of his that were arrested in New York uh, trying to board a plane. Uh, I think he was going to either Switzerland or Austria or something like that. Uh, they've had some hanky-panky, some curious campaign contributions to not only yeah, to Democrats but to Republicans. Yeah. Yeah, underhanded. It seems may have some of them may have even ended up in the Trump coffers. Uh, if that's the case, Giuliani did a huge error if he did not properly vet them. If he hired them as consultants and he took them on, because Trump, when he was getting on board the helicopter, thought that maybe they were his clients. But it seems it's maybe the other way around, where Giuliani hired these two clowns. If that's the case, then shame on him. If that's the case, then Giuliani, I'm sorry. If that is what you did, then man up and respectfully resign as counsel to the president, which is what the left wants. But if you've sullied the waters already, you're only going to make it worse. Let someone else step in. Now, he tried to appoint Trey Gowdy, but Trey Gowdy had a position in a firm that was a lobbying firm. So by law, he cannot take the position as Trump's um, personal attorney until a certain time period passes. And I think that's what, next January or something like that, when he would be able to step into the position. So in a couple of months, he can step in as Trump's attorney. And Gowdy's a a pit bull. And I'd rather see him there. And I'd rather see someone else take over temporarily until they can replace Giuliani. Uh, and have Gowdy step into the position. But these are all things that you know we're going to just watch and play out. I can say whatever I want on air. It well, doesn't mean squat. It's just my opinion. Is, is Giuliani out? Um, Giuliani yeah. is not out at this point. Not yet. Yeah. But let's bring in our guest. Uh, and she is a victim to our show for the very first time. want to welcome aboard the spokesperson for the RNC, Liz Harrington. Good afternoon, Liz. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm good. How are you? All right. We were talking about what was going on with Giuliani and these two guys that just got busted. And like, oh, my goodness. I mean, I was a cop under Giuliani. <laughs> I marched side by side with him in the Columbus Day Parade. You know, I uh, knew him and his first wife and his son, Andrew, I yelled at because the kid was running around hitting the other cops. But I'm surprised he allowed himself to get into this position. And I just hope that, you know, it's not going to cause more harm than that we're seeing. Well, I don't think it will. And, and actually, this indictment really has nothing to do with the uh, baseless impeachment charade that we're seeing that the Democrats are running. It has 
nothing to do with the White House and has nothing really to do with anything in regards to President Trump. And, and we also have to keep in mind where this is coming from. This is from the Southern District of New York, which has been very biased and out to get President Trump and anyone associated with him since he took office. Um, and they haven't been very successful. We'll have to see what happens with this. Um, but from what my understanding of it, it has nothing to do with the White House and has nothing to do with the president. Well, it seems like it happened all before uh, Giuliani hired these two guys. So my only question was, is how well did he vet them, which would also come into question. But that's that's besides the point. They're just using it to muddy the waters at this point, right. as you said, to push the impeachment you know, narrative. Um and they are trying anything and everything. I, I'm absolutely amazed in some of the stuff they come up with. You know, it, it, it's like they've got a complete mental uh, meltdown over there, starting with shift on all the way down. It's been so embarrassing to see them barreling through with this so-called impeachment inquiry, which apparently they're not confident enough about the facts or the evidence because they don't have it to actually put a vote on the floor. Instead, they're hiding behind these uh, rules that they're making up for themselves. They're doing everything in secret. They want to bring this so-called whistleblower to a secret location and not even have them testify in public. It's a complete charade. It is a complete disgrace to our Constitution. And it's based on absolute no evidence in fact. We can all go and read the transcript for ourselves. Everything the Democrats said about this was false. There was no quid pro quo. There was no pressure. And in fact, what President Trump wanted to get to the bottom of and wanted Ukraine's help in doing so was what, in fact, happened in 2016, the election interference with Ukraine in that election, which happened to involve the Democrats and the Obama administration and opening an investigation against Paul Manafort and meddling in that election. So Democrats, President Trump has nothing to hide here. He's been completely transparent, but the Democrats are hiding behind closed doors. They're clearly everything we do learn from this baseless uh, impeachment inquiry is that this is a very biased source, someone in the CIA who worked and reported to Joe Biden, uh, who went to Adam Schiff's committee before this complaint was even filed and, and got hooked up by Adam Schiff with a bunch of Democrat attorneys to manufacture this complaint. This is a, a complete circus, a sideshow, and it has no actual basis in fact or evidence. It's just another excuse that the Democrats are trying to use to overturn the results of 2016. Well, you know, the amazing thing is, is that I find that it's actually firing up the Trump base, but it's also bringing over people that may have voted for Obama in the past or Clinton in the past, but they're saying something's wrong here. Something just doesn't smell right. And I'm seeing a lot more people coming over to the Trump side. Contrary to what Fox News did with that skewed poll that was heavily Democratic trying to show <laughs> that Trump didn't have as much support. I mean, of all things, Fox News, you would think, would have a halfway honest poll, and <laughs> even they can't get an honest poll. 
their polls have been historically really bad. I don't know who does them over there, but the president's <laughs> right to call it out. They're not they're just not accurate and they don't help the conversation with inaccurate polling. I mean, when you ask a bunch of Democrats if they support impeachment, oh, well, surprising, their opinion hasn't changed uh since before President Trump even took office. They've always wanted to impeach him. Uh so that when you ask a vast majority of Democrats, it's not difficult to get a uh, a result that shows in favor of impeachment. So we've seen this again and again with bad polling, but this is what this is designed to do. The Democrats are trying to muddy the waters. They're trying to have an air of wrongdoing. This is what they did for over two years with the Russia hoax, even though it was completely baseless. It, there was no basis, in fact, whatsoever. There was no concrete evidence at all. It was spin. It was leaks. It was innuendo. It was a friend of a friend of a friend may have been somewhere and may have talked to a Russian once. It was completely bogus. And then we spent $32 million, had 19 Democrats working, uncovering every rock they could find. And what did they find? Nothing. They found no collusion. They found no obstruction. It was the most biased investigation you could come up with. And they came up empty because President Trump never had anything to do with Russia. It was a complete lie. And so now that that failed, they're moving on to something else. And it's completely manufactured. But Americans and the public gets it. They're smart. They see through it. It's the same playbook. It's the same dirty tricks. Democrats have not come up with any new ones. And so it's the same game. We're, we're sick and tired of it. And we're tired of Democrats not doing any work for the American people. They refuse to do anything. They refuse to pass USMCA. Today you have Mexico, uh, the president of Mexico, calling on Nancy Pelosi to bring it to the floor. It's a very sad state of affairs when the Mexican president has done more than Americans and the Democrats in Congress has to address our border and to address trade. It's absolutely appalling. Well, you know, uh, we, you know, South Carolina here is first in the uh, South for the primary, and we got the primaries coming up in in June. So we've got the Democrats all over the state, and my district, we lost Mark Sanford, <laughs> lost to Katie Arrington, then she lost in turn to Beer Can Joe Cunningham, and uh, here in South Carolina, uh, I love Drew McKissick, our our state GOP. I mean, he's a friend of mine, and I just could just eat him up. He's just so wonderful. Uh, and he's been organizing these rallies against Beer Can Joe. He was up in Myrtle Beach last night, and we're going to have another one at his headquarters here near where I live, just a couple of miles down the road. You know, we are actively here in this in various states working to get some of these Democrats out of office that are in there. And I know in Minnesota you've got the same thing going on over there. I watched that rally last night, and oh, my goodness, it was phenomenal. And, you know, you had um, Trump at the rally call out the mayor uh, because the mayor, I think he charged Obama something like only 20000 for his rally, but he wants to charge Trump over half a million, something like $530,000. Right. Uh, and he also called out the uh, congressman from Minnesota also recognizing him. You know, the question I have right now in the chat room, and I think everyone in the, in the nation has, is how – many more of our Republican congressmen and senators are going to step up behind Trump? Because you, you see someone like Romney, you know, just trying to pull the votes away. You have someone like Justin Amash pulling the votes away. 
are we going to see more and more of our elected officials standing behind him the closer we get to the election and primaries? Yes, it is such a dwindling few who have, uh, you know, voiced opposition. It's absolutely pathetic. I think, you know, Senator Romney, the junior senator from Utah, should keep in mind that back in 2012 when he was running for president, uh, the Obama administration, that was just the quaint days when they used the IRS to target conservative groups. They didn't actually target his uh, presidential campaign. They saved that for President Trump. They saved that for weaponizing the CIA and the DOJ and the entire intelligence community apparatus against their opposition, President Trump, the opposing political party. It's absolutely appalling. So he should know better than anybody just what the Democrats do. I mean, to sabotage and and to influence our elections. They did it. uh, He should know. He should remember what they did to outside conservative groups trying to uh, meddle in 2012 with the IRS. And then, of course, they did it again uh, against President Trump and spying on his campaign. So I can tell you the vast majority of Republicans and certainly our voters are united behind this president, and they're so excited to see someone who does not let the liberal left uh, set the terms of the debate. He does not let them define him. He's out there last night. You mentioned the rally. It was an amazing speech, just combative against the, the false narrative, but also uplifting and, and for, the, for law enforcement, bringing cops on our stage. Uh, just amazing show of love and just spirit for and great feeling for our country, and that's what this is about. But, and then you look outside that arena, and these radical left-wing Democrats protesting, rioting, spitting on Trump supporters, burning things, inciting violence, at, th- throwing urine at cops, and not a single Democrat will condemn this behavior. This is out of control. And so this dwindling few of the Republican minority who, you know, about 2% that does not have approval, that President Trump has failed to get their approval, they should know that this is what they're endorsing then. if you This is what we're up against. And it was very vicious. It was very horrible what happened outside. Uh, they say love Trump's hate. Well, there was a lot of love in that arena with President Trump and his supporters and our supporters. There was a lot of hate outside from the Democrats. And that's what we need to fight and push back against. Yeah, that really disturbed me because you know, this is a Democratic city. And, you know, he went there because he wanted to put a footprint in Ilhan Omar's district. There was a definite purpose for that, to rally people behind there to get her out of office. Uh, And when I saw the assault on police officers, that just drove me up the wall uh, because I was a cop under David Dinkins, and he did the same thing to us, hamstringing us. And I know those men and women out there must have been so frustrated. It should never occur. And the fact that you don't even have the left saying, you're breaking the law. This is not how we get our message across. We're the ones saying, don't break the law. Get the message across peacefully. And you saw people just talking, trying to say, why are you doing this? You hear the surrounding cars. You have to have the cops now barricade the cars to protect the innocent individuals. Why can't the rest of America see that lawlessness doesn't work? It's so disturbing, those images. And, and, you know, where's the rest of the media? Where's MSNBC and CNN today? Can you imagine uh, what they would do? 
if a if a Trump supporter behaved in even a, a fraction of the behavior that we saw last night, I mean it's absolutely appalling. Uh, and now I'm looking up at my television screen, and CNN says what Trump's cussing and cutdowns mean for the country. Give me a break. What does <laughs> what does this rioting and incitement to violence and throwing urine at cops? What does that do to the country? Because that's what Democrats are condoning with their silence. And give me a break. These people, it's apt, and you're right. I mean, those images, it's just, it's appalling, and it's disturbing. Uh, and yet the media won't refuses to cover it. Oh, and, and President Trump says hell, and, and they freak out. I mean, it's absolutely, the double standard well, is so, so beyond well, the pale. This is my co-host, uh, this is my co-host Curtis, the <laughs> Senate. Yeah, you you never hear the left say anything about, you know, Hollywood when they have their little galas on television and they're cussing and everything. And it's all directed at the president, you know, Robert De Niro, um, you you name it, you know. They all have four-letter, you know, adjectives that they love to express, you know, when they have a national audience. But you never hear from the media about that. Exactly right. And remember, you know, Madonna, the Women's March saying she wants to blow up the White House. I mean, there's so much hatred and hostility. And, you know, we can it's very Orwellian. Like we can see through it. They say love Trump's hate. And then you look at the contrast and anyone that's actually been to a Trump rally uh, knows we have the best supporters. They're just freedom loving Americans. They're kind to people. There's a video of a vice reporter supporter interviewing one of our great supporters wearing a MAGA hat and outside yesterday in Minnesota and somebody comes up and spits on our Trump supporter and he handles it with so much dignity and class the vice reporter is absolutely terrified and appalled uh, and but it just shows you this is where the hate is coming from. They are not tolerant. You know, liberals lectured us about tolerance for decades, and then look at their behavior just because they lost an election. It's unhinged. They've been rioting. They've been. I mean, look at how they with they behaved during the Kavanaugh. Uh, confirmation. This has been unhinged, radical behavior that, once again, the media doesn't cover. The Democrats refuse to condemn. And you, there's just such a ridiculous uh, standard. But the good news is we, ha- we don't have to depend on a couple news networks to get our information anymore. We can see it for our own eyes. And you bet independents seeing these images, they're going to be turned off because this is not what we want our country to be. This, is, this behavior is just despicable, and we've seen it again and again from the radical left, and you're not seeing it from President Trump. And it could, the contrast couldn't be more uh, clear when you look at what President Trump's talking about and uplifting the country and talking about the, the jobs coming back and the opportunity, and then you look at the radical unhinged left outside that building. It, it is absolutely appalling. Well, you know, there's there's one difference between us and the left is that we keep our sense of humor. You know, they tried to put us down when they came out with the TV series All in the Family, thought they would embarrass and shame us. Then you had We Got Called uh, Hobbits by John McCain. We Got Called Deplorables by Hillary Clinton. And every time they do that, we play on that 
And and we make it our own name now. So I am one of the deplorables. The hashtag I'm deplorable. Uh, you see that over and over again. And I gotta admit, uh, the other day I was in the gun shop. Yes, I was buying something, and I saw a local businessman, and I was chatting with him because I hadn't seen him at one of my tea party meetings recently. And he goes, "Oh no, I came up with a new bumper sticker." And he goes, "Vote MF 2020." And I, <laughs> I, I stopped for a second. And I happened to have been wearing a T-shirt that had the initials WTF on it. And I looked down at my T-shirt. I looked up at my friend, and I says, I love it. Because remember, uh, the the California Congresswoman Rashida turned around and said that they were going to arrest or jail the MF. And I said, I love it. And people are just taking – hurl whatever you want at us. We're going to take it with a smile. We're going to turn it back on its head. And with people like you and people like Rona McDaniels backing us up, we're going to sweep 2020. Absolutely. And yeah, I love that. I think it's so great. And it really does embody who we are. You know, we're not going to let these people silence us. We're sick of you looking down on us, but we wear it as a badge of honor because we love this country, uh, and that's what it's all about. And, yeah, I love when we kind of just took the 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 deplorable mantle as a badge of honor, and we took that slogan away from them because, you know, it, when Hillary Clinton says that and you see and you, you hear her words – uh, she's really angry when she says that, and it's just – it really is sad because this is all they have. You know, government is their religion. This is their be-all, end-all. And then for us, we love this country. We love our fellow Americans, and we just want uh, to to be left alone. We want our freedom. We want to enjoy the great <laughs> freedoms that were established in this great country, unlike – uh, anywhere else on earth ever before and that's what we're fighting to preserve and you're so right I love the sense of humor and it's so great to watch any of these Trump rallies or the the president when he goes out and speaks at official events or otherwise he has a great uh, self-deprecation he has great sense of humor and he, he's optimistic and it's it's a really positive image and it the media gets this wrong all the time and they'll never understand it but it's actually a really uh, upbeat, fun, uh, optimistic vision every time he gets out on that rally stage. And it's it's really great. Well, you know, there's one thing I did notice that, you know, the previous uh, RNC chairs and Chad Conley happens to have been a friend of mine also. Um, Ronna McDaniel is bringing something special that the previous chairs didn't have. She's got a certain knack, a certain gift, a certain talent. She's got people like you that support her. But I see a change in the national RNC. I just wish it would then go further out uh, to the rest of the states where they can then start getting more candidates to come up against people like Ilian Omar and the other members of the Mod Squad and start getting back control of our nation uh, but right. such such a power that i see that i haven't seen in a quite a long time yeah and it's because she's a real american and she's you know a mom from michigan and she you know knows her home state so well and she knows what who real americans are 
And that's what's been a great thing about President Trump being an outsider. You know, it's it's a paradoxical in a way, this this billionaire successful in private industry, but he really connects with the forgotten men and women of this country and he has the common sentiments of what we all feel and what we love about this nation. And so it really has brought in a lot of people. We we're tired of, you know, elites and uh, including elites in our own party that look down upon their own voters. And they look down on the American people. And President Trump does not. And he says it all the time. He says, uh, you know, the, the public gets it. They're smart. And you'll never hear a politician on the left, a Democrat, say Americans are smart. They don't think we're very smart. They think that they, from their pedestal in Washington, can, you know, central plan down to our every fabric of our lives. They don't think they need to social engineer. They need to, you know, control every aspect because we're too stupid to do it ourselves. And that's what the that's what the left thinks. And it's been a great time to see someone coming from the outside having some common sense, putting America first. And it's really, I think, uh, given the Republican Party uh, a real backbone and real confidence and to support him and to, to drive that message home. And so it's been a really great – it's a great organization to work for, and that definitely starts at the top with our great chairwoman. And, and it starts also at the top uh, with the president uh, really bringing in so many great people who just love this country and, and you know, want it to work for, for everyone. Well, we've got just one last question in the uh, chat room about the rally. And then I just want to talk about the job numbers because I know you have to run. Um, he wanted to know, you know, he brought Tom Continent, who is actually from Arkansas, into the Minnesota rallies. I've seen that in several other other rallies where he brings in uh, elected officials that are not from that state. Um, is there a purpose to that, or is he just trying to help spread the individual's uh, profile? Yeah, I think it's um, it must have, maybe it was a personal request to come to that one. I'm not I'm not exactly sure, but it's always the more the merrier. And he always does highlight local officials and people from the state. I know tonight he's going to be in Lake Charles, Louisiana, uh, so you're going to have Senator uh, Kennedy there, uh, and so we'll have a good showing um, um, in Louisiana as well. But I think it's all about highlighting you know who can attend and who you know who who's wanted to show up. Yeah. Now, you had mentioned, uh, actually, Gabriella sent me a message saying, you know, talk about the job numbers. So I pulled them up, and I went, holy moly, no one's talking about this. That, uh, in just the few years that Trump has been there, he has added since, well, since 2000, a total of U.S. jobs added was 16.2 million. And since 2000, 10.5 million have been part of that. But in just 2017 and 18, he's added 3.5. That is such a tremendous jump over the previous years. Uh, since 2000, it's more than 20%. Uh, and since 2007, that's something like, what, more than 33%? It's, it's yeah. a tremendous number in just two years. And they're not talking about that. They're saying, oh, the economy's starting to go into recession. Uh, manufacturing jobs are slowing down. I don't right. know about it, that. It's it is absolutely a, a 
absurd. They'll never cover any of the great news we've seen. And this is, I mean, everyone remembers. This is no one's nostalgic for the Obama-Biden years in the economy. Uh, there's a Harvard study that came out. Ninety-five percent of the new jobs created under Obama were part-time or temporary positions. They were not full-time good jobs. And now we've seen a reversal in course. We've seen uh, the amazing things that the American worker can do when you get government out of the way, when you level the playing field to make us no longer the highest taxed nation on earth. It's good for business. It's good for employees. And it's been especially good for employees when you look at the wage growth, because since employers have to compete now, there's over a million more job openings than unemployed people in this country. They have to work really hard to keep you. So they have to pay you more. And the quit rate is something that never uh, gets mentioned, but it's a great indicator for where the state of the economy is. It's been at almost record highs th throughout this year. So that means people are leaving jobs that they have for better ones, and it's a very healthy sign of the economy. So it's a direct result of the pro-growth policies that were put in place by President Trump, and there's no doubt about it. And the Democrats, when they get in the debate stage, the last debate, they didn't even mention the economy. They don't even want to touch it. Because it, how can you compete against this? And the only time they bring it up, you have Elizabeth Warren saying she wants to restructure the U.S. economy. I don't want to restructure to, from where we are now, which is the lowest unemployment in 50 years. <laughs> Liz, <laughs> no. I got one question. Yeah. What is, what is the party going to do about or do they have a plan to reach minorities for this um, upcoming election and for future elections? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, a big thing we're highlighting is the record low unemployment, for sure, for African Americans, for Hispanic Americans. But we're also showing the contrast in a lot of these cities and that have really left them behind. Baltimore is a good example. We put an opportunity zone through the tax cuts in that state. It's so great that Kamala Harris put her one of her campaign headquarters inside that opportunity zone. So we're going to be talking about the economy. Uh, those opportunity zones are amazing to really get uh, left behind communities and urban centers that have been lacking in outside uh, invest investment. This gives them huge incentives to get business growing and turn these communities around. So we're touting that. We're, of course, the economy, but also just issues like securing the border. That's why we're active in New Mexico, because our data shows, you know, you have a Democrat party who's railing against our border patrol, who's, who's calling our ICE agents, uh, comparing them to concentration camps and, and Nazis. And then you have the people that actually live there and who know the Border Patrol and are, are majority Hispanic and Spanish-speaking. They understand the most how important it is to secure the border. So our data has shown us there's a tremendous opportunity to show the contrast between what our policies and what we want to do in protecting our sovereignty and, and not just giving away welfare to illegal aliens who cut the line and stepped one foot in this country and didn't go through the legal process. We have a huge opportunity. The Democrats have gone so far to the left on all on issue after issue, whether it's the open borders, whether it's abortion up until birth. I mean, there's a big opportunity to 
show, look at what President Trump has done. Look at what he's done in coming in and, and fulfilling the promises he's made, securing the border, growing the economy, the most pro-life president we've ever had. And then look what the Democrats are offering. It is so radical uh, and kicking us off our private insurance and going to a one-size-fits-all socialized medicine plan and yet giving it and promising it away to illegal aliens. These are types of issues that we can show the contrast. And if we – they've had such a stranglehold on some of these different demographics for years. Democrats are really dependent on identity politics. We believe our ideas are better, and we'll be able to, to convince any voter, no matter where they are, uh, where they live, what race, what, what sex, what religion, we can convince them on that our ideas are better. And so we're really excited about that. Well, Liz, I'm excited, too, and hopefully if you come here to South Carolina to visit, we will get to uh, meet each other. Um, just have Drew call Absolutely. me, and I'll be there. <laughs> I will be there in a heartbeat. But uh, you're going to be with us next week also, I believe, too, right? Uh, I'm not sure what my schedule is. I might be in Dallas, so we'll have to work that out. Well, Liz, it has been a pleasure, and God bless you for the hard work you do. Thanks for having me. All right. Check out Liz Harrington, RNC, uh, the RNC uh, website. Go to GOP.com. Blah, blah, blah. Teeth and backwards. Uh, we got a new guest coming in on the show. He's an author with a new book out. Uh, it is called, let me make sure I get this name correctly so I don't screw it up too badly. The Hidden Nazi, the Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil. It is a powerful book. And let me just get the book out here so I can talk with the gentleman. Um, I want to welcome aboard Dean Ruder. Good afternoon, Dean. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you? I am doing fine, too. I'm Just bear with me as I try to get myself a little organized here. Uh, sure. Forgive me. I'm just trying to get let me, my Let me just start by saying right. thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to, to visit with you and your listeners. Oh, it is my pleasure. And I'm holding up before the camera, which is live on Facebook, a copy of the book, so people can see all the little post-it notes in there that shows I do read the books, <laughs> not like some that's of impressive. the people that interview. <laughs> well, that's I impressive. I've been on, some, been on some shows where I can tell uh, the, the, the host hadn't read the book or hadn't read much of it, so I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, actually, I did not read the notes that I was sent to you about the questions I should be asking you, so you're not going to get the standard questions. You know, this is a very interesting book, but I also found a little interesting. Uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, because here I thought you were going to be like a historian who's writing a book, and I found your pathway completely different, which brings me to a second part of the question, what brought you to write this type of book when I know you normally don't handle this type of material? No, you're right. I, I'm normally uh, writing about law and policy, um, so maybe I can answer both questions at once. Um, I'm a lawyer by training. Um, I've lived most of my life in the Washington, D.C. area. I've worked for a couple uh, federal agencies in the inspector general community, meaning uh, federal law enforcement, overseeing audits and investigations, criminal investigations. Um, and I've done a couple law and policy books before. Uh, I've spent the last 20 years or so working with the Federalist Society, which is a great organization that your your listeners ought to check out. We're, uh, we have a website, of course. But um, uh, about 12 years ago, a friend of mine who I knew from college 
reached out to me um, because uh, he is a World War II buff, and he had been doing some research on different aspects of World War II, and he came across uh, this one Nazi general, uh, a fellow by the name of Hans Kammler, um, and he was very intrigued by him, started doing more and more research. As, uh, as he's doing that research, he then encountered Dr. Colm Lowry, uh, a, 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 another World War II buff, a serious World War II buff uh, in Northern Ireland, researching the same general, um, researching Hans Kammler. And they came across one another in a uh, World War II forum online. And uh, they started to become friends, um, wary at first with one another, but ultimately uh, decided that they wanted to try and share information uh, and see how their documents and their, uh, what they thought they knew about Kamler, how, how their pieces of the puzzle fit together. So Keith came to me originally as a lawyer and a friend uh, to write a collaboration agreement so the two of them could share their information. And that's how I got involved initially. And then, uh, you know, Keith started feeding me bits and pieces uh, of the story of Kamler, at least what they knew of it then. The research was still underway. Um, and he described, uh, you know, a spectacular set of circumstances that I was very skeptical of, honestly. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm skeptical by nature, and my training as a lawyer makes me even more skeptical. But I, I was immediately intrigued as well because my entire ancestry is German, so I've always, although my family came here in the 1860s, I was always interested in what happened in World War II. And because my father was a U.S. Army officer, I, I was I happened to have been born in Heidelberg, Germany. So I have a uh, an extra layer of sort of interest in in World War II and how uh, such a highly cultured country like Germany could go so screamingly off the rails uh, during the war. Well, you know, like you, I'm of German ancestry. Matter of fact, a part of Bavaria that my family came from is now part of Poland. Um, my father, my grandfather, uh, prior to World War One, was brought over with his brother, and when his father got off the boat at Ellis Island, proceeded to the nearest orphanage in Brooklyn and dropped the two boys off. So they grew wow. up in an era going up to World War One. And a matter of fact, they changed their last name from von Koenig to its English translation of King so that they wouldn't get beat up. Because at that right. time, he said they were literally taking dash hounds prior to World War One and burning the poor dogs in the street. Uh, the things that were being done against German Americans in the name of uh, patriotism. And my grandfather later on served in the army in World War One. Believe it or not, he was so tiny that they had him, and he was a musician, so they had him in the army band, but he he served in Germany playing in the band. Um, <laughs> my other grandfather from Italy migrated here prior, and he also served in the army, in the American army, going into World War One. And my father wow. ended up being part of the occupation troops in Germany after the war. His job in Frankfurt and in other cities was to rebuild the telephone system that we built, we bombed the hell out of. And here a corporal was telling majors and lieutenants on how to do this work. He knew how to do it. They didn't. So when I was reading the book, I was also bringing my own history into it. And you took a very interesting take on when you wrote the book, one that I truly haven't seen in the manner in which you did. You tell the story not only about Kemmler and what was going on, the history of him going up, rising through the ranks with his his job that he had under Hitler and his rise to power and the other things that went on. But you also told us 
how the three of you put the story together, how you ended up delving into the archives and finding little bits of pieces here and little bits of there, little strings that you would tug on to bring you into the next stage. So the three of you are as much a part of this story as are the Nazis and the Americans. Yeah, yeah that's true. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I, these researchers, they're on the cover as co-authors, Colm Lowry, uh, Dr. Colm Lowry and Keith Chester. Uh, they were just so excited about this story and the process, the hunt to, to reveal uh, this man who was so atrocious yet so powerful, uh, yet unexamined by history. Uh, we were so excited about the discovery um, that we felt like the way we worked ourselves through this puzzle, uh, uh, uncovering one piece after another after another, uh, was uh, was interesting as well. And when I started telling people about the story, the, the inevitable first question they asked is it's the same question you asked. Well, how did you come to this, and how did you find him, and, and how did you search out these records? So um, we, we made what we thought was the easy call, a little unconventional, um, but the easy call to write this in the first person and uh, make ourselves part of the story and make the hunt part of the story. Um, and really, I mean, that part has a, a different usefulness for some readers. If they're interested in, in trying to do a book project, especially one that requires a lot of research, it's, it's a bit of a playbook for that. Yeah, going for the foyers and pulling out one little segment and going, wait a minute, and then you find that one agency will give you the documents, another one won't. And you'll get denial here, but you can go through this other door in which to get the information you need and the collaboration and the corroboration. And it is really mind-blowing on how much work you went through. And they were doing this years before you even joined the project. That's exactly right. The collaboration agreement, my introduction to the project was about 2007, and they had already been working on it for quite some time. Um, And, you know, uh, they, they just put in tremendous amounts of efforts. One of them was, was researching here in the United States at our National Archives. Uh, Dr. Lowry Colm is, is over in Europe, in Northern Ireland, but tra- traversing Europe, uh, looking through all the records. A lot can be done online now, um, but there are also records uh, you wouldn't believe in small libraries, uh, university and college libraries across the country. Uh, Air Force bases and military installations have different records uh, so you have it, it's it's excruciating, and you really develop a lot of expertise along the way, um, not only as to where to look, but what to ask for. Um, that that's a key component. And then one fascinating part I found is like I could look at a document in 2012, for example, not see much in it, uh, but then. Uh, you know, another three years later, after I've learned more and more and more about these personalities or that personality or this event, something would jump off the page of that document I saw three years ago, uh, and it just changes the entire complexion and importance of that document. So it's a fascinating process um, and, and really um, interesting to be part of. Yeah, it's funny because uh, you mentioned about getting documentation from the Germans. They don't throw anything out, uh, basically, because my husband, his family uh, fled from Latvia uh, during the war. Her, My husband's father was in a, first off, a German POW camp, and then eventually a Russian, and then eventually into an American POW camp, because they had no idea that these Latvian soldiers were not part of the Nazi army or the Russian army. 
Um, and my husband was born in a displaced persons camp in Augsburg, Germany. And wow. after we got married, I needed a copy of his birth certificate for something. I was able to write to Augsburg, and um, using Google Translation, I translated it into Germany, German for them. They were kind enough to translate it back into English and send me the birth certificate. And I was amazed that here, you know, after the war, you know, everything's confusing. Things get lost. You're dealing with whole entire cities completely burned out. And yet this one tiny little birth certificate survived. It is amazing how they can keep their paperwork. That is amazing, and and they're 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 reputed to be uh, you know meticulous uh, record keepers, and 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 we found that to be true. Lots of good records came out of other German archives. In something of a contrast, uh, on the American side, uh, you know, I think there's a lack of organization there. Uh, I mean, people continue to go through these records and start to organize them. Some of them are being digitized now. But there were a couple agencies that we were particularly interested in, and one of them is it's known that there are no records. All the records for, for this particular agency from 1945 to 1947 are gone. They're just gone. Um, another agency from that same era, five million pages of records were destroyed as incidental. Um, so it's a striking thing when you're trying to do research and, and you come across – um, obstacles like that, because then you're left wondering, what is it we don't have? You know, we have this document, but I wonder if, if you know, there had been uh, a backside to this document, would it invalidate the front side, or would it augment it somehow? Um, so it's a very, very interesting and, and in some ways trepidatious process. Well, you know, I, when I started reading the book, I had never heard of Kamler before you know everyone knows Goebbels they know Spears they know Hamill you know they know all these other names and yet you had someone with just as much power as all the others had and yet no one knew his name however I found it interesting that also World War II is the most written about era in history ever written and very few people knew who this person was yeah, you shouldn't. You are in good company if you don't. If you've never heard the name Hans Kammler before, but you're right. World War II was the the most massive human undertaking in the history uh, of the world. Uh, more people, more movement, more calamity, uh, more effort exerted. Uh, probably more stories of barbarity, but more stories of heroism uh, ever on every continent of of the world. Uh, the war was fought. Um, people lose sight of that, um, and. Um, Nobody has heard of Hans Kammler, although he was uh, as evil as they got and as powerful as they got. Nobody heard of him because at the end of the war, uh, his driver reported that he had killed himself, suicide, near Prague. And everybody bought into that story. Everybody believed that story. And nobody went looking for Hans Kammler. Uh, it's really an extraordinary thing. Um, but the idea that he had committed suicide really didn't sit well with – Keith or Colm or me. We'd already done sort of a lot of biographical work about Hans Kammler, and he wasn't the sort of guy that was going to give in or give up, commit suicide. So Keith and Colm really kept digging and digging and digging, and lo and behold, we find out, uh, and this is part of the mystery of the hidden Nazi, the book, uh, he didn't commit suicide at the end of the war. Um, but because everybody believed he did, nobody chased him. We were in touch with uh, the U.S. Department of Justice Office of Special Investigations, the Wiesenthal Center, 
the Mossad, and every one of them, paraphrasing their response, said, well, no, we never, we never went after Kamler. He was dead. Uh, we had limited resources. We had to go after living Nazis. Uh, so he escaped history, and he escaped justice as well. Well, it was interesting because I found you start off the book uh, interviewing his son. And I found the interaction between his son and his son's wife very interesting. Uh, like I said, you know, being from a family with European background, I could understand the wife being kind of like a little hedgy. But the son was willing to be talkative. But you also played him. And I, I found I, I could actually see this scene being filmed with you sitting there on a chair and just entering yourself forward as you draw the the answers out with the wife in the back going, no, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> it was, I mean, that was, that was another um, sort of chilling experience for me, frankly, going into that. I, I didn't know if this, if this man, the son of, of Hans Kammler w- was going to defend his father. Uh, if we were going to have a conf- confrontation, I didn't know if he'd see me because I just, as I describe in the, in the hidden Nazi in the book, we just sort of, I just sort of walked up on the house uh, I had been in touch by email, but I hadn't arranged a specific meeting, and I just took a risk since I was there in Germany uh, doing research. Um, so I was a little bit surprised but pleased to get in the door. I described in, in The Hidden Nazi, his wife is clearly the gatekeeper, um, clearly didn't want him speaking to me. So I'm in this very odd position of trying to coax information out of him with sort of a hostile witness off in the flanks there, um, uh, tr- trying to, to, to get me to wrap things up, trying to hurry things along, trying to coach him and tell him not to answer this or uh, let's not discuss that. We're going to move in another direction. Uh, it was one of the more challenging interviews uh, I've done in my professional life, including you know, examination and cross-examination of witnesses. But it was, it was, it was chilling, but it was also exhilarating uh, at the same time. Uh, so, and, and I left there knowing that it was the mother, uh, his mother, Kamler's wife, who had Kamler adjudicated dead by the German courts years after the war. Three years after the war, she went to court, had him adjudicated dead so that she could get uh, a pension for her children. Um, but even after that, the family was looking for the father. Um, we described this in, in The Hidden Nazi. So um, – they had him adjudicated dead, but they didn't really believe he had, he, he was dead. And and, and I, I began to feel for this for this son who was who was a grown up at the time, obviously an older man by then, um, because that entire family was left wondering if their father was still alive. And and their two choices seemed to be he either committed suicide or he abandoned the family. Um, n- neither one of which is a, is a great way to 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 picture your father's legacy. Um, and and Jürgen Kamler, the son. Um, we say it in the hidden Nazi. He he definitely recognized his dad was not a good guy, uh, which is another sort of difficult legacy to, to grow up with. Because these children were the children of Kamler are, are are of course innocent. They they've done nothing wrong. So um, it's a fascinating interview. Yeah, because you you talk about Kamler as a young man, and he was nondescriptive. I mean, he wasn't good at athletics. He didn't have, wasn't outstanding in academics. He was like a blah. And yeah. here you guy that's just one of the crowd that you don't expect anything from. And yet he does meet his future wife. And I, I, I got the feeling from what I was reading that she may have been the most influential part of his life that may have brought him down the path he was on. 
He may have had inclinations, but she just brought them out, I think. So that's very perceptive, and you're right. He he was sort of undistinguished. Uh, he was born in 1901. He got his undergraduate degree. He got a Ph.D. in architecture and engineering and married his wife, who had a strong history of having already at that point, this is 1930, had already belonged to uh, Nazi organizations herself. Um, and it's only then, you know, 1933, we see uh, Kamler join the Nazi party, but he joined before Hitler became chancellor. And then less than a year later, he joins the SS, the dreaded Schutzstaffel, um, the murderous SS. He joins the SS before Hitler becomes president. And, uh, you know, it could very well be that his wife was sort of driving his ideology. I do know that he was, uh, you know, got some of his anti-communist beliefs from uh, his father. And, uh, you know, he was a strong patriot. And... You know, Hitler's appeal to Germany was to sort of rehabilitate it after it suffered this uh, unexpected and embarrassing loss in World War One. Hitler was supposed to be the answer to, to sort of these notions of German pride. And Kamler, you know, would have bought into that, I think, perfectly well. And he's probably goaded on by his wife. Dean. Well, it's, it's funny. Go ahead. This is my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett, who's written <laughs> Europe with two. How many books now, Curtis? Uh, 26. Wow. Hi, Curtis. <laughs> hey, I didn't get an opportunity to read your book, but I will in the near future. I'm just surprised that um, Masad, you know, fell for this, um, this explanation that he committed suicide. They, they are usually a little more meticulous when going after, you know, Nazis. How is yeah. it that they were were fooled like that. So I think I, I think that's a great question, and I think it's maybe a combination of things. Uh, one, it was it was the limited resources, and there was this sense of urgency. There was a wanted list. Um, you know, there were people that were known to be alive with certainty, known to have escaped with certainty, uh, known to have killed people with certainty, and that's how they put together their their most wanted list. Uh, Kamler was sort of. Um, and he was involved in the Holocaust from the beginning. He is the guy who chose Auschwitz as the site for the primary camp um, and then built it out. It was already a camp, but he increased the size about three or fourfold. Um, he's the guy who designed the concentration camps barracks that you see everywhere throughout Germany. Uh, he's the guy who decided to cram more people into these barracks and to build them in substandard ways. And this was not just at Auschwitz. This is at you know, camps throughout the Reich. Um, but I'm not sure, certain that, you know, outside of the Reich and the leadership, that his role in, in the Holocaust was well understood. Um, he then went on to uh, play a major role in Germany's slave labor trade. Um, but again, this was, this was Kamler renting out the healthiest prisoners to the German government and to German industry. Um, which fed the coffers of the SS, by the way. But again, I don't know how much visibility into the German regime uh, we had or the Mossad had at that point. And then it was very late in the war that, that Kemmler finally rose to real prominence and took over all of Germany's secret weapons. Um, well, again, I, I don't want to get too far, uh, I I don't get too far uh, ahead. Yeah. I don't want to get too far ahead because what I found interesting is he did train as an architect. And he yep. ended up going into civil service, and now his foot was in the door 
you know, here he is. He's a good Nazi Party member. He's making meeting the right people along the way. And here at the age of 29, he is now given major projects. But he wasn't an inspiring architect. He didn't come up with like gothic features or anything. His stuff was kind of plain, just Unitarian. He had no special skills, and yet this man was given tremendous power over large projects at the age of 25. Yeah, and if he if he had a special skill, if he was able to distinguish himself, it was uh, two things, I think. One is not a skill, but one I mentioned he was early to join the Nazi Party and the SS, which put him uh, – it gave him a level of credibility that lots of other people didn't enjoy. Um, he was a true believer in ardent Nazi, and within that regime, that, that counted for a lot. The, the second thing he was quite good at was efficiency. Uh, he – I mean, I, I mentioned this in The Hidden Nazi in the book – uh, he, he was, you know, to to concentration camps and to killing uh, what Henry Ford was to automobiles. That's a that's a, a a bizarre comparison. But he mechanized concentration camps. He standardized everything, and then he mechanized death. He made it more efficient than anyone had. And you know, the the Germans, the Nazis had had been experimenting with ways of killing people in great numbers. Um, everything from you know shooting individual people and dumping them into mass graves uh, to these gassing vans, which were portable box trucks that they'd load with people and then uh, run the exhaust into the box truck. And then they tried using different sorts of gases. And, and Kamler was visiting these different sites, figuring out what was most efficient. Um, and uh, you know he just developed. <laughs> bizarre to think about and, and abominable, but uh, he became an expert in, in killing, and that's how he distinguished himself. You're right, though, that early on he was there was nothing to distinguish him. He was just uh, he was just one of a group. Although, even with some of those more mundane projects, he started doing them from beginning to end. And he was he's also pretty good at accumulating power, um, advancing his own cause, and 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 on and opportunistically latching on to to folks like Heinrich Himmler. He hitched his wagon to Himmler, which was pretty pretty smart. Well, Himmler had a way of just latching on to people that would help boost him up. He would see the town, utilize the town, and bring them into the SS. And he saw the ability in Kamler, and then Kamler is a good imitator. He saw what Himmler was doing and then proceeded to do the very same thing, which worked to Himmler's detriment later on. That's exactly right. Uh, both Himmler and, and Kamler, and, and Kamler learned at Himmler's hip. Uh, they would see something that was ascendant, something that was becoming, uh, you know, fad is not the right word, but something that was going to be useful and productive uh, to the Nazi regime, something being produced by either the Navy or the Army or, you know, German industry. And Himmler would go out and, and find the principal actors, the proponents of that, and give them a Nazi SS rank. Uh, and then they would become members of the SS. And um, as I mentioned in The Hidden Nazi, when, when Himmler uh, offered, uh, you know, that was a door you didn't answer. You, you responded and you joined. Uh, and most people did. Very few people were able to resist him. So, uh, you know, if there was a, a weapons program uh, that he liked, he'd give the leaders of it not, uh, an SS rank, and then they'd, he'd draw them into his orbit of power. Kamler saw this. Kamler actually was was subject to this. That's how Kamler first came into Himmler's realm. Um, but Kamler saw how this worked, and he began doing the exact same thing, imitating the exact same thing. And then they would do it together um, through the end of the war. 
And you're right. Uh, at the very end of the war, Kamler actually leapfrogged uh, Himmler. He, he, I think, in, in power eclipsed Himmler. What I found interesting is Himmler's purpose was to create a deep state, a state within a state. So the SS became a government unto itself, separate and only answerable to Hitler, and sometimes not even then. Yeah, no, that that's exactly right. And uh, you know, a, a casual observer of World War II might not pay attention to the difference between the German government and the Nazi Party and the SS. Um, those were all separate entities. Uh, the SS was the most diabolical of all of them. Himmler was the leader of the SS, and that was precisely their design to um, to make a sovereign state uh, for the SS. Um, and in order to do that, you need power, which Himmler was excellent at grabbing, and you need money. You need a source of revenue. Uh, and that's um, – we get to the slave labor part that Kamler ruled for the SS. Um, he, they uh, found the most able-bodied prisoners um, and used them as slaves and rented them out, uh, as I said, to German industry and to the German government itself. And to the German army, they were renting these slaves out, charging them, um, and filling the SS coffers. And that's, uh, that was their road to independence. And they were ultimately given the status of a separate sovereign state. People were making uh, blood oaths and, and swearing allegiance to Hitler, not to Germany, not to the Reich, but to Adolf Hitler himself. Um, it's an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, that, that occurred starting in 1934 with the Night of the Long Knives. Explain exactly what that was. Did sure. everyone hear there the was... Crystal Knock? Everyone knows Crystal yeah. Knock. And if you look at these Antifa out there, the very first time I saw them at Berkeley, I said, that's Crystal Knock. But no one really truly understands or knows what happened on the Night of the Long Knives. That's when Germany made a complete divergence. Yes. I mean, that was that was a real, I suppose, turning point. This is this is June and early July of 1934, an incident or uh, a series of incidents that became known as the Night of the Long Knives. Um, and this is Himmler uh, and Goring together, um, leaders of the paramilitary SA at the time uh, that were planning a coup. Um, so the SS, led by Himmler, um, used its special security guard, the SD, um, to round up and then assassinate, um, some, sometimes with trials, but uh, everybody ended up being killed. They just gutted um, the SA, which was a paramilitary organization. They accused it of planning a coup against uh, Hitler. They used that as a pretense. Um, that was sort of the most powerful rival organization that, that Hitler was facing at the time, and they basically decapitated the organization by rounding up its leaders and, and summarily executing them. You know, it's funny because uh, Albert Speer had interacted with uh, Kemmler, and he had some not-so-kind words for Kemmler. Uh, he really, the two of them really did not get along too well, did they? No, Kamler, Kamler had few friends, uh, and you know, it, at first, Speer uh, didn't see Kamler as a threat. But um, you know, as the war advances and we see Kamler gaining more and more power, um, Speer was you know in the inner circle, and he saw Kamler as a threat. 
uh, and then I, I think saw his true colors, saw that he was personally ambitious. Uh, obviously, he, he wanted good things for the Reich and good things for Hitler, but you know, his own credentials, that is Kamler's own credentials, as we mentioned in the Hidden Nazi War, were um, unusually important to him. He was, he was an unbelievably ambitious man. Nothing stood in his way. Um, and some of the descriptions of Kamler we have from his colleagues, including Speer, are, are astounding. I mean, everything from uh, his, his disdain, his obstinacy, uh, his rare obstinacy, uh, to folks calling him the worst person I've ever met, um, to uh, you know, Himmler's most brutal henchman. Phrases like that, that that sound harsh, but when you think about the context, when you think that these are characterizations uh, that are being offered by members of the SS, perhaps the most dreaded organization in the history of mankind, uh, other members of the SS are saying this about Kamler, uh, that he's the worst of the worst of the worst. Um, it really is um, a spectacular indictment of, of his character um, and also of his ambition. Uh, nothing stood in his way. Well, you know, when you read about the Holocaust, you read about the concentration camps, and um, I have a friend of mine, uh, her mother was a Holocaust victim. Um, she survived the slave camps, and she had wrote a book before her mother passed away, and I was talked to her just before her mom's. Her mom was able to listen as we talked about her experience and everything, and you get a good feel on, from Naomi Lipton's book about her mom. But when I read your book, you delve so much more into it, and you had a meeting with a former slave coming out of nowhere. Someone had been in several of those camps, several of which he should never have survived, but he was there. Uh, we're talking about um, Joe Greenberg. Joe Greenberg. You were yeah. talking to the son. It was the son, and Joseph yeah. Greenberg was the father. Right. So um... – yeah, that 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 is another, and that's one of the things about the book, The Hidden Nazi. There are so many sub stories and different threads uh, that just came through powerfully uh, in, in the book. Um, uh, uh, what I haven't mentioned is one of the camps that Kamler built from the ground up was in central Germany. It was called Dora Nordhausen. It was the largest underground factory in the world, and it was built by Kamler's slaves in a camp that he built. Uh, Dora Nordhausen. Uh, the fellow you're talking about, I met his son-in-law, Joel Greenberg, at one of my work events, and I sort of laid out in broad strokes my book and this Nazi general. Uh, we were just having a friendly conversation. Joel had worked at the Department of Justice OSI. Um, he didn't know Kamler, but um, he let me go through my entire story uh, about how, how Kamler had built Auschwitz and built Dora and he said, oh, my father-in-law, uh, Joe Gringlis, is a survivor of Auschwitz and Dora, um, which is just a stunning thing. There, there can't be more than a, uh, a couple of people that have survived Auschwitz and then were shipped to uh, Dora and then survived Dora. Because, as you well know, um, I can tell you're a student of the war and of the era, uh, the, the final solution got pretty far down the path, the idea of of killing every Jew they could, and in the very end, uh, you know, these death marches uh, ended up killing so many other uh, folks who were left. There were very few survivors at most of the camps, and the idea that somebody survived Auschwitz and Dora is just extraordinary. Uh, so I had the good fortune to go to his house in Philadelphia 
uh, sit down with him and interview him and, and learn what I could about his experience, um, uh, which was a phenomenal opportunity. And I end up, um, it's a little obscure, I dedicate the book to, uh, to, to my family, my loving family, and to be – 2247, B2248, B2249. And as I explain in the Hidden Nazi, uh, Joe Gringler's number, his tattoo on his left forearm is B2248. Um, and so I'm dedicating the book to him, but also to the, fir- to the person who was in front of him in line and behind him in line and everyone else uh, who, who suffered through the Holocaust and, and many who, who lost their lives in the Holocaust. Um, so that was just an unbelievable opportunity. Uh, and Joe Gringlis, I have to say, um, and we lay this all out in The Hidden Nazi, he faced down Dr. Mengele, Joseph Mengele, the angel of death. He was in the sorting line, um, looking up the line, seeing the table uh, behind which Mengele sat. Um, and that was the point at which people were sorted. You go to the left, you're going to the gas chambers and facing immediate death. You go to the right, you're a slave, um, and you face long-term uh, outlook that is not so good as a slave in a concentration camp. Uh, mm-hmm. He got up there and you know, told a little white lie about his age and his physical abilities, uh, and Mengele said, okay, you go to the right. You're a slave. That's how he saved Dean. his own life. Yes, sir. Dean, if any of these guys, these Nazi war criminals, were still alive today, they would probably be in their mid to late 90s, if, if I'm, I'm correct. Do you have any sense that um, anybody, including Messiah, is still looking for these guys? Well, so that's a great question. I mean, at this point, the, the war is almost 75 years over at this point. So you, you would have to have been a pretty young man at the time of the war, meaning not a very high rank or not very, uh, very much ac- accomplished. Um, Kamler was born in 1901 uh, in what's now Poland. So he would now be 118 years old. Uh, wow. so I, I'm, I'm convinced nobody's looking out for him. Uh, the time to find him, the time to track him down um, ha- has unfortunately passed. But, uh, you know, as storytellers, uh, we, we thought there was still time, and this is the right time to, to reveal the story, at least, in The Hidden Nazi. Yeah, it's, a, it's unfortunate that it's taken this long for it to come out. But these stories have been hidden, and there was a reason why they were hidden. Because now, one of the things that Kamler was involved in was helping to build the facilities to build the planes, the munitions, the V rockets, all the other weaponry because of his ability to get a job done so fast, it ended up coming all under his Himmler's purview and eventually his purview. He had complete control over all of these things that they were doing. But why didn't we know about him? We know about von Braun. We know about the other scientists that the Americans and the Russians took over after the war to help develop our own munitions programs. But Kimmler was unique. 
he was unique. He was unique in his, the wingspan of his power. The, the breadth of his authority was was absolutely extraordinary. Um, you mentioned that at the end of the war, he's in charge in charge of all of Germany's secret weapons, uh, including the vengeance rep weapons, the, the rockets, the V1 and the V2, but also including uh, the jet airplanes, all sorts of technology that everyone was absolutely hungry to get their hands on. Um, these were the weapons of war that were far advanced, far exceeded anything any of the Allies had. And whoever got these weapons at the end of the war, whoever inherited this technology, w was going to ha have a huge head start uh, in, in becoming a superpower. Um, and you mentioned Werner von Braun. He worked for uh, Kalmler. Kalmler was his overseer. Um, and we, the United States, uh, I think won the Cold War, at least in part because we got the best German Nazi rocket scientists, including Werner von Braun, but also including dozens of other folks. Um, and we only got them uh, because of what we call the Kamler deal in our book, The Hidden Nazi. Um, it's clear that Kamler was in negotiations with the United States, uh, and I can go through this tightly uh, sequenced series of events, uh, but he, he had been in negotiations with the United States uh, well before the war was over. The rocket team was uh, housed in northern Germany. The Soviets were about to capture the rocket team. Kamler signs in order to move the rocket team and keep them out of the out of the way of the Soviet army into central Germany. Um, uh, then uh, it becomes clear that that part of Germany is going to fall to the Russians. He moves the rocket team a second time, this time to, to Bavaria, southern Germany, right into the uh, advancing army, the U.S. Army. Um, so he basically hand-delivers uh, the rocket team to the United States, this, this incredibly valuable uh, team of, of scientists and engineers who become our ICBM team. They become our NASA. Uh, Bob Hope has this joke, or had this joke, I should say, uh, which has the ring of truth. And it was, you know, our, our, uh, we got to the moon first because our Nazi scientists were better than the Russians' Nazi scientists. Um, and, and which that, was the absolute truth. And because yeah. one of the things Kamler was able to do is that he knew where the armies were advancing, who was going after what, where. Uh, so when he saw that the Russians were coming into Prague, he made sure he got there ahead of time to help save the scientists and his staff, moving equipment and documentation and hiding all this stuff. He, he had it where he would break it down, and one hand doesn't know what the other one did, but he knew where everything was. He knew where all the bones were buried. You are exactly right. I mean, he had he had so much power at the end of the war. He had visibility into so many different uh, things. He he was the master of transportation at that point in time. He ruled all transportation, so he had access to trains and planes. Uh, he could get anywhere. He, and if anybody could get there, Kamler could get there when it when it came to the the, the collapsing Reich. He was the one who had freedom of movement. Um, and we saw him. I mean, his nickname was. Uh, Staubwalk, uh, which is German for dust cloud, which describes his frantic pace uh, as as the Reich, the German Reich is collapsing. Uh, he's moving here, there, and everywhere to try and collect the technology, the assets, the things he had promised the United States in order to try and save his own life. Well, the funny thing is, here he's involved with the V rockets, with the airplanes, with all the other munitions, and Believe it or not, the German scientists folks out there were already working with fusion and fission, going from atomic 
to nuclear uh, in the weaponry, and they were just looking at the proper delivery system, getting it down to the size of a suitcase. Uh, but he saw what happened to Rommel in Africa when the assassination attempt, when they almost got Rommel. So he had this thing where he always traveled in an open car. We could have 360-degree view around him, which brought to question one of these stories about his death by a Russian princess that was a compatriot about him dying in a closed car, which didn't quite ring true because he never rode in a closed car, did he? Right. You're exactly right. I mean, he was—he—he he feared being strafed from above by by Allied planes. Uh, Germany had no air superiority at the time, and and Allied planes roamed pretty freely. Uh, they'd go after a, a general staff car, obviously. Uh, so he always had the top down. He always rode in the front seat so he could get himself out of the car and into a a ditch on the side of the road and try and protect himself if he was attacked. Um, and uh, you, you sort of put your thumb on 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 an important aspect of things there. You know, as the years went by. These, the, the death story of Kamler, the suicide story of Kamler, began to unravel a little bit, uh, and 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 then we'd see refinements of the story, uh, different changes. You know, his his driver had the original story. That's the one that was believed by the court. Uh, that's the uh, the basis for for which he was adjudicated dead. But then there were other. You know, people started to ask, well, there's no body, uh, there's no grave site. We've looked for the grave site with ground penetrating radar. For goodness' sake, we can't find that. Nobody returned his his sidearm or his paperwork or his uh, dog tags, identity disc, which were the German equivalent of dog tags. This guy at the end of the war was an Obergruppenführer, which is the highest commissioned rank in the SS. He was the equivalent of George Patton in the U.S. Army. Um, so it would be, it, 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 you'd have to believe that we'd lose George Patton's body in the field of battle somehow. It's just not going to happen. Um, and when, when they couldn't produce a body, when there were no graves, then you start to see slightly different versions of his death. That Oh, it wasn't – he didn't shoot himself. He did commit suicide, but it was cyanide. And it wasn't there. It was, it was over here somewhere, but I'm not sure where. And then there were several different versions of his death, and that's one of the things that, that my co-authors of The Hidden Nazi uh, – one of the things that, that triggered their curiosity, that you know, if there's more than one version of a way a guy died, they're, they're obviously incompatible. <laughs> Um, somebody's not telling the truth, and perhaps nobody's telling the truth. And and we found it to be the latter. The hidden Nazi shows that well, the nobody funny was part telling is, the truth. Well, the funny part is anyone that knows anything about service in the military, and my co-host, who happens to be a veteran of uh, Desert Storm, would tell you that you know if you do lose a buddy, one of the things you do do is you grab the dog tags. If they have any letters on them, you grab the letters. That was the most significant thing. I mean, it's one thing you may lose the body. But it's right. another thing, you brought back proof of, of that death. And what I found amazing is how the story changed over time. Now, mm-hmm. allegedly, he, was, he surrendered to the Americans. But then, supposedly, the Americans lost them. Oh, but no, wait a minute. No, they didn't lose them, but maybe they did. Uh, but they want them for trials in Nuremberg, so you have to be questioned. But it, we can't – and it goes on and on and on, and the lies that compound – just make his disappearance that much easier. Mm-hmm. It, it does. I mean, it is. It's an unbelievable story of of um, obfuscation, 
Um, and, and it really does point out the importance of this man. The Americans, I, I'm convinced, and we lay it all out in the hidden Nazi, and we document it. I mean, we're very clear where we where we say this is what happened, and uh, other instances where we think this is what might have happened, where we're speculating, uh, because there are some there are some gaps in the information still. There are some question marks. Um, frankly, it's our hope that. Um, Somebody's going to hear, uh, read about this book, uh, read the book ideally, um, and remember that their uncle or their grandfather had mentioned this guy, and they've got a box of documents up in their attic, and um, it's going to shed a little bit more light on on the Camler deal. Well, it has to, and the supposition is is that a lot of these guys went into some sort of witness protection program. The question is is what did Kamler have that was so valuable that the American government was willing to bury him in anonymity, hide him forever from not just uh, their allies wanting to bring him to the Nuremberg trial, but from the Americans here in the United States to know that this man committed so much atrocity. He was the one that was responsible what type of chemical was used to kill people. He chose it, knowing full well that it was going to cause him to die a far worse death than if he had used a different chemical. He was the one who decided that the slave labor is going to work until they drop dead at their working station. He made those decisions, and yet he had to offer us something that was so valuable that we overlooked this. Hence the title of the book. Right, yes. That was the calculation. And I, I think Kemmer had plenty of value to offer. I think the most um, important things he offered were the, v, was, were the technology behind the V-2 rocket, um, which became America's ICBM. Uh, it became our intercontinental uh, ballistic missile, uh, and um, it won the Cold War for us. I do think that uh, you know, the geopolitical landscape today would be vastly different if we had not gotten the German rocket team. And it was Kamler that um, handed them over. It was Kamler that produced them. He's the only one that was in a position to put them on his personal train uh, and move them from central Germany to Bavaria, where the U.S. Army was advancing. Um, And we have the order signed by Kamler doing that. Um, On his personal train, incidentally, which is uh, nicknamed the Vengeance Express. (laughs) I mean, it was even so much that when everyone was fleeing Germany with the fall of of, uh, Hitler and the fall of the whole Nazi regime, Hitler wanted to get a plane because they had these massive planes. uh, They called them trucks. And we thought they only had one or two. Turns out they had a lot more than that. But Kemmler had so much power, he could turn around to his boss and say, you're not getting that plane. We're using it for something else. Right. No, that's exactly right. You're referring to the Junkers 390. This was the longest-range aircraft of the era. It could fly from Europe to uh, South America. And uh, we developed information documents that show Himmler making a request for uh, one of those. And Kamler just saying, no, uh, you know, uh, you, you can't have that, um, which, is, which is an astounding thing if you think about it. I mean, Himmler is uh, one of the known bad guys, and here is – the unknown figure in history saying uh, no thank you to him. Um, that's how much power Kemmler had at the very end of the war. He, he could deny his boss the use of an airplane, and he did. 
Now, there was a supposition, like I was starting to ask before, about what actually happened to him. And when I was messaging back forth to uh, uh, Kylie, I, I told her that back in the late 70s, early 80s, I owned a travel agency. And I took a trip down to South America, going through Venezuela, Colombia, Argentina. And I had mentioned something that occurred, and she goes, hmm, very interesting. I was wondering if I had actually crossed paths with one of the villages he may have ended up settling in. It's quite possible. I mean, our our, our best information is after he'd, 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 he performed his side of the deal, he, he delivered – he delivered the rocket team. He also delivered other technology and documents. Um, we have some information that would indicate he might have been in position to deliver treasure and gold, artwork that was plundered. Um, he certainly knew where these things were kept. Uh, he built every underground facility in the Reich. He was involved in that. And when it came to sort of um, if they couldn't offshore those goods, uh, then they buried them, uh, and they buried them in Kammler-built facilities. Uh, so more than anybody, he, he was the one to know, you know, where the booty, the bounty was, was, was buried. Uh, and I think we think he gave that all up to the United States and in exchange got a free pass, escaped justice. And, uh, you know, we know he was in American custody for months after the war. Uh, then we see a, a British extradition request uh, asking that Kamler be turned over to Great Britain. Those V-2 rockets had been used mercilessly by Kamler. Kamler was actually out in the field firing these rockets, uh, raining them down on London and Southampton and Antwerp. So the Britons wanted to try Kamler. Um, so there's an extradition request in the folder, which means, of course, and this is February 1946, by the way. This is 10 months after the war, um, which means, of course, the Britons knew that Kamler wasn't dead. Um, at least the people making this request. You don't make a, an extradition request for a dead man. Um, and then there's a note in the file saying, we don't have an objection to Kamler's extradition. Um, and then the paper trail just runs completely cold. There's nothing left of Kamler after that. It was as if he, he never existed. Um, and well, you know from that I point forward – go ahead. No, I was, I was just going to say, what I found funny is he did try to get to his family at one point and tried to reunite with them. But after a while, he simply gave up. And what brought to mind is that having read several other books, and I have some friends that are authors that do some of this stuff too, the Germans had this policy that if the, the person in the family, the head of the family, someone like Kamler, uh, were to die, that the sins of the father would not be visited upon the rest of the family. They get to go free. So one of the reasons why they would say he committed suicide is to let the rest of the family you know, go free, live their life without any blemish on them. Uh, it, was, it was just a German way of thinking. And I'm wondering if he chose that path rather than trying to rescue them and taking them with him. Well, you might think that, but his attempt to, to get to his family was in April and May of 1945. His suicide, quote-unquote suicide, was in early May of 1945, after he failed to reach his family. That's when he reportedly committed suicide. But we know he didn't commit suicide. We know he was alive for at least 10 months later. Um, so um, 
I don't think he committed suicide at all. I don't think uh, he certainly didn't commit suicide on on the in the claimed year uh, that his driver said he did. And I don't think he ever committed suicide. I think he we lay out three different scenarios at the end of the hidden Nazi, um, and we sort of rank them in which is most and, and least likely. Uh, I won't give away the ending, what we think is the most likely, but uh, I think we make a pretty good case um, uh, that um, we make a pretty good case for what we think is the most likely scenario. Um, but certainly, he didn't he didn't die at the end of the war. That's for certain. No, and, and and as I was alluding to, I was alluding to the alpine villages that you can find up in the mountains in Argentina, Venezuela, Colombia. Um, and what I found so amazing is that um, I, I was were we on air Argentina? I forget who was hosting the the group that was with us. Uh, but they took us up there, and this is a tourist vi- a village, and they would send mm-hmm. you, sell you these little German trinkets, these lederhosen and everything else. Oh, how quaint. You know, after the war, they, these people got booted out of their homes, so they had no place to go. And you're thinking that maybe these might be German uh, Jews or something. And some of us knew history a little bit better. So when right. I was reading your book, it just crossed my mind. Did I actually walk into one of these villages that he had been at or that he was at? It's very possible because a lot of the Nazis fled to South America. They fled to the Caribbean as well as South America, knowing full well they would not be extradited, and they went completely free. Right. No, you're exactly right. They were they were South American countries run by totalitarian dictators, very sympathetic to national socialism, very sympathetic to the Nazi cause, very welcoming of Germany's visas were granted by some of these countries in the thousands and tens of thousands. Um, we know that lots of Germans, a lot of them just regular Germans, uh, not ardent Nazis, but lots of Germans and lots of Nazis uh, fled to South America. Um, you know, there, there was a there was notice really that the war was going to be lost by the Germans for months beforehand. So there was ample time uh, for people, especially people of means, people in powerful positions, to plan their own exit strategies, and they did. Uh, they weren't stupid. They got fake identity documents. They got aliases. Uh, they had tickets. They had ways out. Um, uh, so, and and it's and it's a provable fact that there are German enclaves throughout South America. We uh, we came across a 1953 CIA report, um, so 1953, eight years after the war, talking about these enclaves, the fact that there are German restaurants and whole, entire German villages, uh, a German chamber of commerce, uh, things like that. It was as if uh, you, you described them as Bavarian villages. That's about what they are down there. You would think you're in Bavaria. Yeah, I so you might, very, well, you might well have eaten. You might have eaten in the same <laughs> restaurant uh, with Hans Kammler. Who knows? <laughs> but the funny part is, is that tourists were eating it up without knowing exactly why these villages were here. And, and to me, I, I understood having, like I said, my father being a World War II veteran and having sure. my family background. And I understood exactly what I was looking at, but I didn't dare say anything, uh, you know, for Freer that's like, all right, fine, you're trying to take tourism away from our country. How dare you? We'll never let you sell trips to here and forget. No, you know, but we've let it slide. Our American government has let it slide, and we have let people go unpunished only because they can hand over goods that we thought were worthy enough 
to let them forget about not just the six million Jews that were killed in the concentration camps, but the, the millions of gypsies and Catholics and political prisoners and uh, prisoners of war that died at the hands of this man as slaves. It, it is it is astounding, and that's one of the vexing things. I mean, there there was a lot of emotion put into this book and the research and uh, a lot of tribulations, but that's one of the most vexing things I found uh, doing this research. It's the, it's the Nazis that had the most power and therefore were the most wicked that had something to offer at the end of the war. It was very clear the Soviet Union was going to be an existential threat. Um, they, they, their way, the Soviet Union way, co- communism was incompatible with capitalism, and 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 the Soviet Union was hell bent on world domination. Hitler, for all his uh, you know evil, never really was out to conquer America. Um, but now there's this new existential threat, and we were recruiting Nazis who were in a position to help us, and that meant they were the the worst most powerful people, including Hans Kammler. Those were the folks that were in a, in a position to bargain. They had something to offer, as you, as you suggested earlier. Um, and that's doing the Hidden Nazi, the book, and that, that's one of the most troubling aspects uh, of the whole episode. Is it, is it seems like the, the most damnable people uh, were the ones that, that had something to trade in the end. And I, I thought it was not amusing, but somewhat sad that I remember that commercial Walt Disney put up with uh, Dr. Braun, Bernard Braun, uh, promoting Disney and how nice, how wonderful NASA is. And I just remember my father and I looking at each other going, we don't believe he just did that. That evil man that filmed the commercial. But that's the American mindset. Um Dan, uh, Dean, it has been a pleasure having you on there. We will have you back. I will get have Kylie to have you back on, and we'll talk about Federalist things, about the Constitution and the law. Uh, but this is an amazing book. It's called The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil. To let you know, there is a description and a link on the show page, so when people click on the archive and listen later on, they can click on it and get to your book, which is at Reginary Press. God bless you for the hard work you do, sir. Thank you. The same for you. And I've had a lot of fun. Thank you for having me on. Take oh, care, my Dean. pleasure. Thank you. All right. Uh, check it out, The Hidden Nazi. Check on the link and uh, get the book. It's an excellent book. Let's bring back, always fun to have him as a vic- victim in the hot seat, John Tamney of Freedom Works. Good afternoon, John. You also have a new, new book out, which is bound to get people pissed off on both sides of the aisle. It's called They're Both Wrong. A Policy Guide to America's Frustrated Independent Thinkers. Good afternoon. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yes, I aim with all of my books to anger both sides, and in this case I go chapter by chapter, liberal, conservative, conservative, liberal, to show why the deeply held views of both sides are so often incorrect. Well, you know, I, I kind of took a little bit of an umbrage, and I'm sure that's exactly what you intended to do, uh, because you went after National Review, and I've never considered National Review to be a truly conservative uh, uh, periodical. I stopped getting it because I started getting pissed off at them, because like you, I thought they weren't firing on all cylinders with a true conservative message. Yeah, no, there's an argument for that, that uh, when you think of uh, William F. Buckley and how his conservatism was uh, standing athwart uh, an encroaching state, and you now have a modern national review that 
embraces wage subsidies for the supposedly suffering Americans that quite literally wants to, government to plan uh, who can come into the country and who cannot. Uh, a National Review that supported the bailouts back in 2008, even though the bailouts caused the financial crisis and slowed economic recovery. It's not your grandfather or father's National Review. What's funny, because when the bailouts were going on, my husband and I joking around, and thank God I married a like-minded person, <laughs> not like James Carvel and Mary Matlin, um, but we, we just kind of like quipped at each other, you know what, uh, if you want to give a bailout, send the bailout to each and every small business owner. Send a million dollars to every single small business owner across the United States. Don't bail out Ford and GM and Chrysler and all the other idiots. Give it to us because we will produce the jobs and give you the revenue back. And it, to us, it was a joke. But what do we have? We've got Democratic candidates that are basically saying the same thing. You've got Yang out there, $1,000 to everyone. It is just crazy. Yeah, no, it's especially crazy. And in, in fact, I, I have a chapter in which I address uh, guaranteed income. We have people who quite literally crossed oceans and borders to get here. We have people uh, just who wanted to taste economic freedom. They knew they could provide for themselves. We have heroic people who were injured to the point of blindness and, and losing of limbs, yet they figured out a way. They weren't going to be victims. And so I, I think it's – people say it's elitist to say we don't need uh, guaranteed income in a country like the United States. I think it's elitist for anyone lucky enough to live in the United States to presume – that they are owed in addition to having won the lottery, which is living here where they have endless opportunity to travel all 50 states to get the best job, that they think that somehow they're owed guaranteed income above and beyond that. Well, you know, here I'm going to challenge you because you said that we shouldn't have a means test for who should come here to the United States. But if you think of the very first vessel that ever landed here, there was always a means test. You had some way that in which you had to work your way over here, and once you got here, you had to be able to be self-sufficient. So there always was some sort of a means test. You had people that ended up selling themselves into, um, oh, good Lord, I just had a major brain fart. Uh, not slavery. Uh, oh, good Lord. It was the next Indentured step up. servitude. Uh, it, Thank you. That's it. That's the word I was thinking of. Indentured servitude. And the United States dropped that long after. And even into the 1900s, going into the turn of the century, Canada still had indentured servitude. You know, there was always some sort of a means test to come over here that if you came over here, you're not going to be on the dole. You've got to be able to survive on your own. And that was the largest means test possible until we built Ellis Island in which my grandparents came through, and again, there was a means test. Well, yeah, I, I, I hear your point, but you and I, I think, would blanch at the idea of Chuck Schumer and, and uh, Mitch McConnell saying, okay, uh, U.S. businesses, this is how many computers you can import, and this is how much steel you can import, and these are the goods and services. This is the quota that you can have in terms of the goods and services you want to bring in. Uh, we would blanch at that, but we're going to somehow allow, allow government to choose the most important driver of progress of all, which is human capital. And I think that on its own is dangerous. But the other thing is, look, it's already means test. If you've got the courage to cross an ocean 
or a border, going to a place where you probably don't know the language and you just want to taste freedom, I think you've passed the test. Now, this notion that there's, there's welfare waiting for, for those who cross the border, there's really not a lot of evidence supporting that. Well, as a retired New York City cop, I've seen it. I've seen it where they were getting welfare, they were getting Medicaid, they were getting Section 8 housing. And there's always a way around it if you find the right organization that will help you to commit that fraud. It's out there, and I have seen it one-on-one, uh, but that's besides the point. There shouldn't, there shouldn't be anything. You come here, there's no safety net. The same way we go to any other country, we're expected to adhere to the law. If we go to Mexico, we can't get a job unless you bribe half a dozen government you know, officials in order to get to a job. But yet we have free and clear. We're not even screening people for diseases where we're seeing a rise in STDs, a rise in typhus, a rise in leprosy. Not, I'm not just talking about whooping cough and measles and that, but leprosy. And you have law enforcement officers out there dealing with these immigrants and now with the homelessness that are getting these diseases. There has to be some way to screen so we don't spread disease, too. Well, yeah, I just – my response is, well, A, is the federal government the entity to do that at all effectively? But my other response is, you know, if you really want to keep immigrants out or if you want to slow the number, just elect uh, Elizabeth Warren and give her the House and Senate because – the policies she want would slow the economy and would greatly reduce immigration. Let's be clear that the greatest reduction in immigration in modern times occurred from 2009 to 2014. Was this because President Obama was particularly tough on the border? No, but as conservatives regularly pointed out, he wasn't very good on, on economic policy. And so it's a reminder that, that immigrants aren't coming here to get free stuff. They're coming here when the economy's good. And so if, if, if we want to have a growing economy, I think we've got to accept the fact that people are going to figure out a way to get here. That's just nature. It's what your grandparents did. It's what people do. Well, that I completely agree. One thing I love about it is you bringing everything back to the Constitution. And you point out, and I say this many times, that all politics starts local. If we had things taken care of on the local and state level, rather than letting federal government, as it expands, taking over more and more, telling us what to teach in the classroom, what type of light bulb, what type of toilet. There are, I, I, if there's something that we use in our daily life, there is a federal regulation covering it. Yeah, no, I, I think you hit it on the head, and I that that's how my book begins. I say, is it any wonder that there's there's such divide? Is there is it is it any wonder that Americans are so political nowadays? And they are because Republicans and Democrats no longer acknowledge that the Constitution is a limiting dom- document that limits government on the national level, on the federal level, so that people can choose. The kind of government they want. People say to me all the time, "Well, you're so anti-government." No, no, no. I'm anti-national government. Um, I want decisions to be made locally. When Burger King thought about when rolled out the Impossible Meat Burger, what did it do? It didn't force it on every single all 7,200 stores in the U.S. It tried it in St. Louis. It experimented. And so, when Burger King makes a mistake. It, it makes it locally, or it, or, it, or it does something well, and, and it goes national with it. 
That's all I want with policy. If people want a lot of government, have it. And if you want a lot of immigrants, if you want to give them welfare, do it locally. Make an economic choice. Pay for it locally, but don't nationalize. Don't foist your values on us nationally. Well, you know, I had a huge thing with uh, uh, disagreement with Ted Cruz when he came out waving the H-1B-1 visas, saying we need to bring more of these people in. And at the time he said it, Walt Disney was doing this, uh, GE was doing it, I think GM was also doing it, with their high-tech people. They were telling them, we're going to replace you with an H-1B-1 visa. You're going to have to train them to take over your job. And if you don't do that, we're going to discontinue your severance package, and you're going to walk away out of here without a recommendation, severance package, nothing. And they were forcing these people to train immigrants coming, being brought in on these visas to take over the jobs they already had. I disagree with that. I mean, if you have a hole in our system that you don't have someone to fill in for, fine. But if you already have someone in that job doing a good, competent job, then why are you going to bring in an immigrant to take over a job you already have? Well, but my take is I think businesses are private entities. I think they should be able to do whatever they want and hire whomever they want. I think once you start telling businesses whom they can hire, you are inviting all sorts of government involvement in the economy that's going to be ultimately harm everyone. And so, no, if, if the, you know, we wouldn't, I don't think you and I would ever say to a business, oh, no, oh, you want to import foreign inputs. Oh, so shame on you. Let's put a tariff on you. Let's tax. Let, that's wrong. That's wrong. Buy, buy locally. I think you and I would say that that's incorrect. Well, why can't businesses import whomever they want in order to do that kind of work? And again, I think that a lot of this could be solved if. You know, Santa Monica were free to offer all sorts of handouts to immigrants, and then maybe uh, San Angelo in Texas would say we're going to do the opposite. Let localities experiment with this, but let, let set businesses free to hire, hire whomever they want. I agree they should hire whomever they want, but if you've already got someone in there doing the job you want them to do, they're, they're perfect, they're excellent in what they're doing. But, but suddenly, implicit there, what you're saying is that, is that they're not perfect. If they were perfect, if they were doing exactly what you wanted, you wouldn't feel the need to bring in someone from, from the outside. What we're seeing here, if this is in fact happening, and I've, I've always wanted to meet all these American workers who've had their jobs taken by immigrants. I think it's a lot more uh, you know, theory than reality, but if it's true, why can't businesses hire whomever they think is best? We always encourage individuals to import, get the best deal possible to exchange their work for the best deal. Why can't businesses get the best human capital they think that will, that will make it most possible for them to grow? Well, from the few stories I read on this when this first started happening back in uh, 2012 uh, is that these individuals had nice salaries plus employment packages – and the only reason why Disney did this and GE did this is because they could bring in an immigrant, not offer all the bells and whistles to them, and get them at maybe half to one-third of the, what you're paying an American worker. Is that wrong? Is it wrong for businesses to, to get the best deal possible? Um, they have shareholders, and if they're not pleasing their shareholders, if they're not achieving the greatest level of profit, their shareholders can walk. 
Now let's remember the assumption there, of course, or implicit there, is that businesses always seek out the, the cheapest uh, cheapest workers. Well, if that were true, then San Francisco, New York, and Los Angeles would be full of just unemployed people not working anywhere. But in fact, that's where the vast majority of investment in the United States goes to. The simple truth is it's very expensive to hire uh, low-priced workers, and it is for an obvious reason. Do you remember what you were paid in your first job? Did you stick with it? Well, obviously you didn't because it didn't pay well enough. Low-paid jobs have high rates of turnover. Which is why I had Liz Harrington on here earlier because we were talking about you know the economy the way it is because we have a high rate of turnover because precisely this is happening. People are seeing that there's a better job up ahead, and they're leaving those low-paying jobs for the better jobs, which brings me around to the minimum wage. See, I, I'm doing this to provoke you <laughs> deliberately. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to ask him I've about never... the living wage. <laughs> The, the you know the left but, pursuit of the living wage <laughs> because i I've, I've never been one who supported the minimum wage now as a kid working three jobs put myself through college as a small business owner uh, all the way on up i've never agreed in it i believed in being paid my value and if I got Joe Blow standing next to me with his thumb up his nose and wasting half the day and I'm working my butt off, you better be paying me twice as much as you're paying him. But they came up with this minimum wage in the 1970s, and they just basically ruined the incentive for people to strive to be better. Yeah, well, you know, my view is, is that the minimum wage should, it shouldn't just be zero. It should be less than zero. Um, I should have the right to say to, hi, Mr. Jeff Bezos, I am so desperate to learn from you how you do things. I will pay you for the chance to come to go to work for you. Uh, wages are – government should get out of the way, stop putting up barriers to people offering up their services at what they deem it's worth to be, and sometimes that could be negative. Um, you know, interesting about this and, and the, the way I frame it in the book is that the left implicitly understand this. They understand that minimum wage just limit the ability of people to get jobs. And how we know this is Hollywood g- generally skews Democrats, uh, but Hollywood, if you want to act in a film, you have to get a SAG card. And it's very difficult to get a SAG card. And why do they have those? Because they know that a lot of actresses and actors would say, if I can be in a Steven Spielberg movie, I will work for zero. I will pay them to be in it to get my shop, and so they don't want that. So they force a minimum wage uh, on actors and actresses, which limits the ability of them to find employment. So both the left claim that, that the minimum wage doesn't keep people from getting jobs, but their very actions, one of the industries they control the most, reveals that they know, know that it in fact does. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, when they start protesting for the $15 minimum wage, and this was, oh, God, maybe about five years ago when they started floating this idea, um, I had talked to someone about one of these local franchises. It happened to be in McDonald's, and they said, you know what? They're coming out with these kiosks, and the kiosk is going to cost only $10,000. And I started doing the math. How many people would they need to do the job of this one kiosk? And you ended up looking at the business saving somewhere close to $50,000 a year to install a $10,000 kiosk. So why would you have someone demanding $15 minimum wage when this kiosk can do it at a fraction of the cost 
increase the profit margin, allow the guy to expand to create more franchise locations, hire more people than to man those locations. So he would, in the end, despite the fact he was using automation to replace work, would also increase the amount of work. Oh, without quite, but but see, this is where I'd say to you, look, one hundred percent. And I make the point in the book. I say conservatives say, well, oh, hey, look, look at what minimum wage is. It caused businesses to automate. And my response is, they'd be automating for all the reasons that you just said. No matter what, we could lower the wage, minimum wage to zero, and they would still have an incentive to automate, maybe even more, because low-priced workers are very, very expensive. And we know why, and you know why, because you quit those jobs. They're not forever, and so the turnover is high. And so, and so, yeah, I, I am fully with you on this. That that um, businesses should be able to employ kiosks and automate. But if, if if you like that, why don't you like the process whereby a business says, okay, I can get a human to potentially work for a lower price? But why aren't they allowed? To, why are they allowed to hire machines but not other humans? Well, you know, here you need what happens is when you do innovate, new jobs open up. Without now, I, I am not com- I'm not completely sure that if you we were going to go down to a four hour work week. I don't know about that. I don't think. We as human beings would be able to survive if we do that. We need something to do. Otherwise, you just waste yourself in leisure, and then you're worth nothing. Uh, so I, I'm not too sure. I, you're always going to have people that need to create and need to build and need to do. But Oh, you know, I don't doubt that. Now, I, I just think that what's going to happen is the productivity of the workers going to rise so much that more and more businesses will say, okay, one of the ways that they'll compete to get workers is, look, you're producing so much in four days, we're shutting down on Thursdays, and there's going to be increased leisure. So I hear you. For me, I want to work every day, and it's, I think you're kind of the same way. I enjoy what I do so much. I would never want to take extended time off, but for a lot of people, this would be the chance for them not to just laze around. But work four days a week, week, earn a very high wage and productive work, and then focus on different passions. Focus on maybe learning a new skill that would enable different kinds of work. Now, there is a comment in the, uh, in the chat room about corporations operating in the public good. Now, if you do have a corporation that's not acting in the public good, that's when you vote with your wallet, correct? Uh, without question, for a corporation not to do well by its customers, to not uh, do well by the, the people who live in its area, uh, it's, it's an economic decision that can run them off. And so what you see historically is that thriving corporations go out of their way, A, to please their workers because they don't want to lose them, but also to do good things in the community to keep – to bolster the image of the business within the community, and so – Successful businesses have historically built football stadiums, added bleachers to high school football stadiums, put on parades, all sorts of things to bolster their image in the community. Uh, Businesses have this incentive. They don't need a law. They don't need to be forced. Uh, that I do agree. You know, your, your book is very interesting, and, you know, I had a laugh when I got to the chapter of affirmative action, uh, having been the victim of it, uh, being told that, you know, sorry, you're too white for the job. We need to hire minorities, and my co-host happens to be a minority, so he's probably chuckling on the other end. Uh, but 
when they come <laughs> up with these ideas to try to level the playing field, instead of letting the cream of the crop come forward, the content of character to prove forward, they come up with these ratios and then lower the skill level and the intellect of everyone involved. Yeah, and they rob people of the perception that they're there because of their talent. Um, what could be worse, uh, what they've done to people who potentially belong is people assume, oh, yeah, well, you're part of the protected class, so you're not here because you're good, but because of the color of your skin or your gender. And so you do nothing for anyone in doing that, and, and I make the same argument uh, when governments are aggressive about handing out student loans and everything. You know, there's always going to be kids who have rich parents and who have grandparents who donated a building at Harvard such that they can go there. They're always going to have those advantages. But what the poor and middle class used to have, the way they could differentiate themselves and and lap these kids with all the privileges, they would say, you know, I went to college and it was a local one, and I worked, as you say, three different jobs to get through. Um, It was a major sacrifice. That's how they used to be able to differentiate themselves. Oh, you got through college. That says so much about you. But now since government wants to make this a right, they're robbing people who aren't as connected of the avenue, of the way of signaling to businesses that you've got one ambitious son of a gun ready to work and work incredibly diligently. Exactly. You know, when you take away incentive for a man to try to strive to be better, and then you take away anything that the person should live for, and they go down this path of moral morass that uh, we're seeing today. You have too much idle time on their hands, and everything is just too easy, too easily given away. And if you don't work for it, then you will not completely enjoy it. Yeah, that is no. something I've always said. And one of the things that you point out in your book is that it's not just the individual we're talking about. It's also government. We give government our money too easily, and we say, go ahead, fix these problems. But that's not the way it should be. Well, it's not because government – people who work in government used to be in the private sector. They, they don't have – halos on their heads or anything like that so all you're doing when you hand dollars i hate when conservatives say oh hey you rich liberals if you if you don't think you're paying enough in taxes just feel free to give the government more well don't do that to me because guess what that's a tax on me every extra dollar that goes to government is an extra dollar that nancy pelosi has over the economy and kev and 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 Senator McConnell has over the economy. I don't want government involvement in the economy as a tax because they don't take in dollars. They, that, that, that gives them control over the economy's resources. I want less of that, not more. Absolutely. It is a fantastic book saying they're both wrong, a policy guide for America's frustrated independent thinker. And as I said, you know, you start reading it and you're going to get mad. Either side of the fence you're sitting on until you stop and you sit down and you start to think about what you're trying to tell them. And there was legislation at one point in time to have whenever legislation came up before Congress, state specifically in the Constitution where Congress had the authority to do that. We haven't done that in more than 150 years. Yep, we've forgotten about this. Both sides have. I I would tie it back to the 1930s. It was then that Republicans and Democrats decided 
that people couldn't experience a recession and so government was going to step in. Well, let's be clear. There's nothing about economic growth in the Constitution. There's nothing about being protected from the economy's natural ups and downs. Uh, government was never empowered to do that. But once you opened the door to it, both parties decided government revenues could be used to do things for people. And it's grown and grown and grown. And all I'm saying is, hey, if you want a lot of it, if you want big government, that's your choice. But make it a local thing. And as I said, all government starts off locally because you op- you vote the guy in for dog catcher, for sheriff, for council, and they go up the food chain. Next thing you know, they're in state government, state government into federal government, federal government, and then they got all of your paycheck. Yep. Well, you know, as I said, it is a very, very interesting book, and I know my co- my co-host Curtis has a question back there. Go ahead, Curtis. <laughs> I just want to know what what are your thoughts on um, this um, fake kangaroo court, this um, impeachment of our president? Um, I think it's an indictment of both sides in the sense that the president is not supposed to be this important. And so both sides didn't – the Democrats plainly didn't want to accept the results of the election, and so they've just very dishonestly, I think, gone after every which way to get the president out of there. And, of course, mm-hmm. my book doesn't talk about this, but it talks about what an indictment it is of the country that so many Americans thought that Trump was just going to ruin the United States. And at the same time, so many Trump supporters thought Hillary Clinton, if she's elected, we're going to be Venezuela tomorrow. I think both sides severely insulted this great nation. If either one of them could wreck this country, it's not worth saving in the first place. But the main thing is if everyone's – if half the country's terrified of Hillary and half the country's terrified of Donald Trump, that's a sign of a presidency and a federal government that's got too much power. And so now we're wasting time with impeachment, but let's, let's acknowledge we wasted time with it back in 1998. Republicans said at the time, well, Clinton has besmirched the office of the presidency. And he, we need him out of there. Well, this is what you get. You, you ultimately get this back and forth, and it's shameful. Yeah, there was a question in the uh, uh, comment um, about you wanting the four-hour work week. You don't say in the book that you actually want the four-hour work week, but you do foresee a time in the future where that would become a possibility, that you know we have so much productivity that someone would have the leisure of saying I can only I, I only need to work four hours a day four days a week. I don't need to do this. There's a matter of having a need or and then the matter of having a want to do it. And this is again what you address in the book. Well my my strong sense is that yes, more and more it's going to be businesses will say one of the advantages of working for us is that we have a four-day work week, uh, or we have more flex time. My guess is that's where we're headed. Uh, now, some people say, okay, too much leisure, that's going to be a problem. But I think implicit in four-day work weeks, implicit in automation, and automating away the work of the past, is that work is going to be more and more of an expression of passion by people. Uh, all, the three of us right now are doing something we plainly love. And I think more and more people will, will view work in the way we do as a result of all this automation, as a result of four-day work weeks. And so I don't – I think 
the irony here is that as as people are given more leisure time from their jobs, they're probably going to work harder than ever because work is going to be where they're a superstar. Something that they actually enjoy doing. Yeah, and, which is the whole point of it. Not, You're, it's not you know, mandated. It's, it's years. voluntary. Yeah, remember 150 years ago, you kind of knew your path in life. You were going to get up. Uh, once you're of age, you're going to work six days a week from dawn to dusk on a farm. You know, how well would the three of us do if that were our choice today? How ambitious would we be? How much would we love work? And so thanks to automation, thanks to tractors, thanks to fertilizer, people were freed from the farm. And more and more people are freed from factories and steel mills. And so work is going to, with time, more and more be an expression of, what, of, of our unique passions. I do believe that we went from agricultural to a manufacturing economy to a service economy. I strongly believe the next economy is going to be called the entertainment economy, as in more and more people do for a job what they couldn't get enough of doing when they were young. Well, John, it's an excellent book. They're both wrong, A Policy Guide for America's Frustrated Independent Thinkers. And if people want to get a hold of you, all they have to do is go over to Freedom Works, where you are the director for the Economic Freedom at Freedom Works. Thank you, uh, John, for joining us. And you know, always welcome to have you back on. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. I really appreciate it. Love to come back on sometime. Take care, Absolutely. John. Thank you. John Tandy. All right. And we've got our final guest up in the bullpen. We are going to not intimidate this man. <laughs> Retired United States Navy uh, Captain Ryman Shove. Good afternoon and welcome back, Ryman. It's always fun to have you on. Annie, it's um, so appreciative that uh, you let me be back on uh, again. I love your show. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I had so many things I started putting aside for you last uh, last night. I shouldn't say last night. Yesterday I had three teeth pulled. So I did my notes two days ago. And um, as I was sitting on the couch in pain with the ice pack, and yeah, I popped some nice pills. <laughs> uh, I started feeling a little better. I started pulling up more and more stuff. So I actually, I don't even know where to start with you because there's so much to cover. You know, one of the things um, we've been talking about, uh, and you know, it's a passion of mine to recognize the men and women out there that do the hard work in our military as well as, as our first responders. And I know it's a passion with you too, but buried in the back of uh, an email I got oh, good Lord, uh, a couple of days ago, that there's a special op tax force that has 50 combat awards in just one deployment. And we hear everything else in the news. We hear about uh, the Trump and Ukraine gate. Uh, We hear about uh, all these other scandals that are going on. But the men and women out there that are actually doing the grunt work that deserve to be on the front page are shoved to the back page. Oh, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think we're doing some uh, some incredible work, and it's it's the left. I mean, uh, the, there's a real battle going on in our country right now between the left and truth, because there is no truth in the left. It is, uh, and, and, and in my opinion, I'm a student of history, and this is really what America has been about since its inception of that seeking of truth, and you had those that wanted freedom and liberty in 1776, 
I, those are those were the people of the right, in my opinion. And then you had the people that said, nope, let's stay with King George. You know, we want to be servants. We don't want to be independent-minded, free, liberty-loving Americans. We want to be um, dependent uh, servants to the king. And it was the it was the liberty-loving people that won in 1776. But that idea of this wonderful document called the Constitution really wasn't fulfilled until 1865 because we had a segment of uh, of Americans, and they were Americans, even though the Supreme Court in 1857 in the Dred Scott case said that you know Dred Scott had no case because um, he couldn't come in front of the court because he was black, and because he was black he wasn't human, because he wasn't human he couldn't be um, couldn't be a citizen. You know that the idea of this wonderful document called the Constitution couldn't come into fruition until 1865, until the war was over, until we fulfilled that beautiful promise to say, "Oh no, everyone, no matter who they are, have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness." And it's going to be America that's going to give the opportunity to have that uh, pursuit of happiness. And so I think what we're seeing right now is just this a uh, play in history playing out again of the left saying, "You know what?" We want to deprive the unborn of life because they can't have any liberty. They'll never be able to pursue happiness because that is uh, our mindset. And so we're seeing this kind of play out again, and I turn on the television, and I'm like, yeah, we fought this and won in 1776. We fought it for four years, 1861 to 1865, and you know what? I think we're going to win again because truth, liberty always wins in the end. That's my, that's my feeling. Well, just to recognize this one unit, because I mentioned them, and I want to do them the complete honor, uh, because this is from um, Stars and Stripes. Uh, for their efforts, the soldiers of the Special Operations Task Force 102 earned five Silver Star Medals, seven Bronze Star Medals with Valor Devices, 15 Army Commendation Medals with Valor Devices, and 21 Purple Hearts. The medals were presented last week at a ceremony attended by soldiers, families, and friends at Fort Carson, uh, Colorado. And according to Lieutenant Colonel Justin Hegnagel of the 2nd Battalion, 10th Special Forces Group, Airborne Commander, he stated that for 170 days of blistering season, a series of airborne, I'm sorry, I had teeth pulled yesterday, blistering series of operations we focused on disrupting the enemy in their strongholds, awarding them 48 medals to the unit for 170 days of combat. Wow. Yeah, Is well, that not right. humbling? It, and the whole time you're reading that, what do I feel? And I think every one of your listeners feel the same thing. Wow, what an incredible country. Wow, what an amazing statistic. Wow, don't we have some incredible Americans doing incredible stuff. But yet you turn on the television, and it's America's horrible. Our president's horrible. We have to impeach him. We don't really care about all the good stuff that's going on. We want to just put it in front of the American people. Got to get rid of this president, and we don't really care of the good stuff that's going on. I'm on your side, Annie, and I know I'm with CS also. Uh, love your love your co-host there, by the way. Love his writings. So, um, <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, I, I think uh, I, I think like him, uh, and my brothers. That's for sure. Uh, but no, I, I, I think oh, yeah. just like you, Annie. I, and I would really would, would think about what kind of country we would have, Annie, if if everybody turned on the television day and, and instead of seeing the you know really the the crap that we're seeing, we saw what you just said. What what a difference it would make. You know, 
it, it would make everyone a little bit more prouder and maybe a little bit more willing to give than to take. Uh, that would be wonderful. The, you know, there's the golden rule. And I, I always say it the way it should be said is that there are two commandments that Christ gave us. And the first one was, thou shalt love thy Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and all thy mind. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Upon this hangs all the commandments and the prophets. If we just live those simple two things, to know that there's, there's someone there to guide us, God. And to treat our fellow human being as a human being, the same way we would want to be treated. You, if you watched the, the rally in Minneapolis last night, and everyone inside that rally was having a marvelous time, going out outside, and they were willing to interact with the protesters out there, just talking to them one-on-one as the way they would want to be treated. To see it erupt in the violence, you've got one side that's willing to say, hey, listen, let's talk, let's put the hand out. Let's treat each other equally. And you've got the other side that Mm -hmm. says, no, we're going to beat you down. And no matter what, you will kowtow to us. Is this a republic anymore or have we fallen into the social states of America? Oh, I I, I totally agree with your point. And and there's a a story that's coming in my head when you're talking about those two uh, commandments. And what I, you know, I was thinking of, um, if we did like you said, Annie, and just implemented those two commandments, guess what? You'd have no crime, you'd have no hunger, because if I have two two loaves of bread and my and my neighbor doesn't have any, guess what? They're getting one of them, and uh, you know, and if, and if I have three and both my, both my neighbors don't have any, guess what? We're going to each have a loaf. There there goes the hunger. So you have no crime, no evil, no hunger, and that's why God said that. Because uh, you get rid of that selfishness because you wouldn't be able to sleep at night because knowing that there's your neighbor's hungry, you'd take care of them, and that would solve those problems. Um, when I was in uh, station in D.C., there was a, a rally called the 828 Rally, and uh, my wife and I got up early in the morning. We thought we were going to be the first – we were going to get on the first metro train to go into D.C., and I think the first train came by – I think it was six. Anyway, we came – the first train came up. Uh, and it was so packed we couldn't get on it. The doors opened, and we just looked at everybody, and the doors closed, and it left. Nobody could get on because it was so packed. We waited for the next train to get on, and because we, we, you know, we felt we were going to be like real up close, and we, we ended up being about two-thirds back from the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, that's as close as we could get because it was just shoulder to shoulder, and I remember in front of me there was a gentleman. He was uh, probably in his 40s, and he had a daughter. And I thought this was wonderful. I didn't see a mother. I'm assuming that there was no that this mother was not in this family. But he had his daughter. She was, uh, you know, probably uh, a young teen, but totally disabled. She's in a wheelchair, you know, where where it has a pillow that comes up. She's got a she can't even hold her head up. And she's got this head. She's it's holding her head up. She's laying on one side. And I'm like, wow. You know, he got up and got this this monstrosity of a wheelchair in because he wanted him and his daughter to sit there and see this rally about, you know, what's good in America. Well, the sun came up and it started getting hot. And I said, it was just packed wall to wall. We couldn't move. And I see uh, after several hours of this rally, the sun comes up and she's getting hot and she's uncomfortable. And I can see her motioning to her dad. You know, I'm hot. I'm uncomfortable. And he's looking around like, you know, what do I do? 
I can't even move myself, much less this cumbersome wheelchair um, uh, that my daughter's in. And as he's looking around, I see other people What's walking up to him. What's wrong? What do you need? And he's telling them, you know, my daughter's hot. We need to get out of the sun. Immediately, everybody picked up and parted like the Red Sea all the way up to the side of the hill where the shade was. I'm watching this take place right in front of me. I'm like, man, I love this country. Everybody just stopped, stopped listening, stopped watching, picked up all their stuff, squeezed in as close as they could to make room for this wheelchair as she motored it around up the side of the hill into the shade so she could continue to watch but be comfortable in the shade and out of the sun. And as soon as she was taken care of, then everyone else kind of moved back into the, into the open space that the, where they were before. But I'm like, man, I just so – Love this country when the kindness just, you know, just ebbs when someone needs help and everyone's just like, "What do you need? Let's make it happen. Let's do it now." Which explains why you had a couple of thousand protesters outside and eighty thousand Americans inside that auditorium last night. It's a small handful of people that we are allowing to control the message, and it's got to stop. Oh, I, I have. I, the the uh, you know the Rush Limbaugh's of the world has said and uh, and I hear this over and over again is the only reason that you're seeing what's happening now is that we have finally awoke we have finally found a leader that speaks for us because the leaders in the past just rolled over and did nothing and now the reason that the left is so angry is because we finally decided to rise up and stand for what is right. And what is true, and I love it. I think this is an exciting time to be alive, an exciting time to be an American. And uh, you know, it bothers me when you know I watch C-SPAN and I hear people call in and say, um, you know, Donald Trump is full of hate. And what I hear is, is when Donald Trump is full of hate, I'm full of hate. Mm-hmm. When Donald Trump doesn't care, I don't care. You know, when Trump, when Donald Trump is racist, C.S. Bennett's racist, and I know C.S. Bennett's not racist. I'm not racist. <laughs> we love our neighbors. You know, we want to take care of our neighbors. But when I hear that, you know, Donald Trump is X, Y, Z, it's just pointing back at me. And I'm telling you, I've had enough of it because I'm not racist. I love my neighbor. I love my God. I love his son. And I'm not, I'm not tired of putting up with it. And I'm glad we're pushing back. I'll tell you, you know, what is hate. Because... And that's the fact that um, even last night when Donald Trump was doing his speech, his son, Donald Trump Jr., spoke at the University of Florida, but the hatred and the protests, I mean, weeks in advance before this happened last night, it's, it's, it's off the scale. I mean, they even wanted to go after the students who organized Donald Trump Jr. to be on campus. It's, only, it's like they can only listen to one side, and that's their side. Yeah. I, I know what you're saying, CS, and I just um, – I have made a couple comments that you know I really think that the, the left really needs to be careful because we're peaceful and we're good. But I'm telling you, you can only push so far until I could, I could really see something you – know, violent is not, might, might not be the right word, but I'm telling you, you can only push good people so far until they say, you know what, I've had enough. And um, and I can tell you the the the, uh, the kind of ending point for me was uh, if you know you know my bio my last four years in the Navy I was I was in Washington D.C. I, mean, I taught national strategy uh, and policy at the National War College so I'm surrounded by people from the left 
you know, these are Oxford, Harvard, Princeton kind of people. And I'm an open-minded kind of guy. I would listen to them. You know, I want to understand your side. Which side are you coming from? And I'm like, gosh, that's just not fact-based. It's just, it's just, it's not living in the real world. But I listened, you know, and um, and that was during the time of uh, of Obama. I did not share Obama's views. I thought he was probably the worst president we've ever produced. But that's okay. He was elected. You know, I served honorably. But what really was a tripwire for me was when Trump. On his inauguration day, as I'm sitting in front of my television, and there's Antifa destroying private property, setting a limousine on fire, and the cops stood there and watched. And that was the final straw for me because I'm thinking, you know what? That could be my house being torn into. That could be my car set on fire. I'm the one saying, please help, and the cops just stand there and say, sorry, I've been told by the people that I work for not to help you. What do you do at that point? Because it's too late. And I'm watching. I'm like, that's it. I'm not interested in what the other side has to say because that side is violent, and it's not good, and it's full of lies, and I've reached my limit. And I've talked to enough people to tell me the same thing. You know, I'm kind of at my limit of trying to be tolerant. I'm I'm tired of being tolerant of the people who have no tolerance. Well, you know, we were discussing this earlier because we're finding more and more people. We had Liz Harrington, the spokeswoman for the RNC, on earlier, and she's agreeing that we're seeing people that may have voted for Obama, may have voted for Hillary Clinton in the last election. But when they see this violence and they see the one-sided hatred and they see the Trump mania, they're all of a sudden saying, wait a minute, this is not the America I grew up in. This is not the party I thought was representing me, and they are coming over, either as independents or doing the complete walking away and becoming conservatives and Republicans, because they understand we're not here to beat them up. We will have a discussion with you. We may not agree with you 100%. You can probably get two Republicans, staunch Republicans or staunch conservatives, have a conversation and still find something to disagree with, but do it in a polite and friendly manner. And, and this is what used to happen. You used to be able to sit down with family and friends and may politically disagree, but you were still friends. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the genius, the absolute genius of our founding fathers and the way that they created this republic is that the, the real purpose of the elections is that every two years you have a little a release spout, a relief that lets off the pressure of, you know, I don't like what's going on, but in 24 months, I'm going to go vote again. My vote will be honored, and I can change direction. And so and if you look at just the genius of our founders that every two – in two years, we can change out 100 percent of the House of Representatives and a third of the Senate. In four years, we can do the House a second time, two-thirds of the Senate and the president. And within six years, we can change out the House three times, the president once, and the entire Senate. In six years, you can change the entire direction of Washington if the people decide so. What, what are, that's a great relief valve because if you don't like it, you can fix it. When it stops working is when you vote and someone says, you know what, your vote doesn't count. And oh, by the way, if your candidate wins, we're just going to impeach him. We're going to drive him in the dirt. Well, then you get to the point of, well, then my vote doesn't count. Within Annie and CS, what do you have left at that point? You either stand up and have a 1776 again, or you just go down in history and thrown on the ash heap of history as it wasn't worth defending. 
because the left is evil and they never stop. And you're right. I think there are a lot of people who are Democrats who have looked at this and said, hmm, yeah, if I don't get my way, I'll vote in two years. But my, I don't like this idea that we're just going to start burning things and we're going to wear bandanas over our face and we're going to beat people. I, I, I don't like that because what if, what if I end up being those you know, those people, you know, the whole thing of they came for the Jews and I said nothing. And then, you know, they came for the Presbyterians and I said nothing. And then finally, when they came for me, there was no one left to say anything. Well, exactly. You don't want to be that group at the end. And and the the left, the evil part of it, it never stops. So you're absolutely right, Annie. You're absolutely right. Well, it's funny. Uh, several months back, there was this immigration protest that was going on nationwide and here in my local town, they decided to gather at the local high school to have this pro-illegal alien uh, uh, protest, you know, to support these illegal aliens here committing crimes. And we decided we were going to do a counter-protest. Well, they were about maybe three to 400 people, and we were five of us. <laughs> so... I grabbed the American flag and was a five of us. My husband was with me. And if anyone looks at my Facebook page, they'll see my husband, Yanni, holding the American flag, wearing a MAGA hat. And as the protesters came for us and we were there with the pro-Trump signs and everything, uh, some of them tried to challenge us, you know, tried to get into a fight with us. And all I did was I said, we're going to sing God Bless America. No matter what happens, we will continue to sing God Bless America. And as this group of about 300, 350 people marched past us, we continued to sing. And you know what? Some of the people in that group marching were actually starting to sing with us and would give us a thumbs up because they understood that in order to have a conversation, two sides have to get together yeah, and have to make our sides known before we can yeah. find the happy middle. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It's interesting times. That is a fact. But I love it. I'm, I, I mean, uh, I was watching uh, Trump last night in Minnesota. I was just laughing and laughing. I mean, this guy definitely entertains me. But I, I, I love what's going on right now because I just feel like I finally, I finally have a voice. I didn't feel like I had a voice under the eight years of the Obama administration. I just kind of cringed. Um, and I like what's going on now. I'm I'm a whole lot more concerned, Annie, for 2024 than I am 2020, to be honest with you. I think 2020 is going to be a huge sweep, but 2024, uh, when the president's time is up, it gives it, it gives me a pause for concern. It really does. Captain, well, and hopefully what? by then enough of America will understand what they're fighting for, and we'll start to flip everything around. Curtis, go ahead. We got about eight minutes left. So what's on the agenda for Turning Point in America in the near future? Well, I appreciate that. Uh, that's a great lead-in. First of all, we, um, we have moved from Turning Points in America to We Can Be Heroes Foundation. We're not actually a foundation now. We, we've expanded some of, uh, of what we do for veterans. Um, the biggest thing that we do is uh, this will be the seventh year in a row uh, that we've honored what happened in Benghazi. And just for your listeners – uh, let's go back to 11 September 2012. That's when Chris Stevens and his staff were serving honorably in Benghazi, and they came under attack from uh, enemies uh, of freedom, from enemies of our country, 
and they called out, and they were under attack for 13 hours. They called out to the most powerful government in the world. They called out to the most uh, powerful military in the world for 13 hours, and they got nothing. They were abandoned. They were left. And if you know the end of that story, we never did help them. Uh, how they got out was they requisitioned uh, a oil company Learjet, and ironically, a Libyan C-130 that had been used by Gaddafi. Uh, Gaddafi did more to help the Americans on 11 September 2012 than the Obama administration, and of course, Obama had Gaddafi killed. Um, so um, not not uh, very good for Gaddafi there, but he was the only one that helped us. Of course, he was dead at this point, but the C-130 was uh, was from his staff. Uh, so they did more to help us than our own country. And so we're the only group right now that we know of that has not forgotten um, what happened on September 11th. This October 26th will be the seventh annual uh, remembrance of those guys that died. Those four of them, two SEALs, an uh, information officer, and, of course, Ambassador Chris Stevens. This year's speakers is Claire Lopez, and if you're watching the Values Voter Summit, she's one of the speakers. She is a, a former CIA officer, incredible speaker. Uh, Adam Francisco, he is an expert on Islam. Ken Timmerman, I've heard him speak Monday. He's an incredible speaker. I highly encourage you to get him on your show. He is a Nobel Prize a nominee and an expert on on Iran, and he also worked uh, with Trump on his national security team for a while. Phenomenal speaker. And we have Morgan Brittany, and both of you guys actually know Morgan Brittany because you remember the show Dallas from the 80s, the Ewing family? Yeah. Oh, I grew up picture with her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I know, CS, you've already met her. But Morgan Brittany but, was the uh, no, actress I that played the bad sister. Go ahead. I, the I politi- think, Curtis, I think. Yes, we we met her up in Myrtle Beach at the last South Myrtle Carolina Beach. Tea Party Coalition convention. I introduced Claire Lopez to Curtis at that same convention. Ken Timmerman mm-hmm. has been on the show in the past. I haven't had him oh, on great. in a long time, so I should have him on. Great. So a lot of these people are a thing. But I'm also going to propose to you, because Curtis will not be able to co-host with me next week. Would you be willing mm-hmm. to co-host with me? Sure. I'd love that. That'd be an honor, Annie. Well, this is a lead-in because next Friday we will have Brigadier General Robert S. Spaulding. He's with the Hudson Institute and also has a book at Stealth War. Michael Barone, you know him from Fox Business, uh, National Review. Uh, He's got also a new book out about the political parties. Uh, John O'Connor, who was the attorney for Deep Throat, has a new book out about Watergate called Postgate. And returning is Liz Harrington. Uh, She is the RNC spokeswoman. So we've got a lineup next week that you will fit perfectly in with, Ryman. I appreciate that, Andy. That's a that's an honor. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, my pleasure. And I want to thank you for joining us. We're down for our last few minutes. Curtis, it has been a blast. I managed to survive having three teeth pulled. And Ryman, I told <laughs> I, I told Curtis before that the teeth were so hard to come out, I thought the dentist was going to climb up on my chest. So I got a bruise on my chin. From the dentist pulling out these teeth. So that's why I was having a little problem with my speech, but we'll be better next week. Uh, but that's all we got for today. I want to say, can I get 20 seconds? Can I get 20 seconds, Annie? Okay, we, we can it. be heroes. If you, want, if you want to do it, we can be heroes. Just Google, we can be heroes foundation. It'll bring you up. You can get tickets. Tickets start at $45. It's October 26th here in Jacksonville, Florida. Florida. October 26th at, uh, starts at 630 at the University of North Florida. 
Love to have everyone there. We're going to honor those guys that got left behind. All right. Well, I'm going to make sure I change the website because I've got Turning Points in America down there, and I'm going to make sure We Can Be Heroes is going to be up there instead. So thank you, Ryan. And I'll be talking with you uh, during the week. God bless for the hard work you do. I'll be here. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. That is all we've got for today. Uh, So I'm going to uh, end up the show, and where was my song? Here we go. Uh, Told you we're going to be ending the show with Gary Piccarella out of Charleston, South Carolina, his new song out, Save America. Until then, I say to everyone, good night, God bless, and see you next Friday.